hundred KSTP. Desert as a great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening or good morning, as the case may be, across this great land of ours. From the Tahitian and Hawaiian Island chains in the west, eastward to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the Poland, worldwide on the internet, we do get around. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. And we've got a lot going on tonight. In a moment, Linda Moulton Howe, an update on the Harp Project, a view from the other side. And then, in the next hour, astronomer Tom Van Flanderen. And he's got a lot to say about Mars and a lot more. So, all of that this night. I cannot open the program without uh, commenting on the uh, Kathleen Willey story. Of course, I saw it on 60 Minutes, like the rest of the world, and I thought she was credible. I thought that, uh, on balance, uh, she was telling the truth, and this is just a judgment call based on listening to her. Uh, however, although 60 Minutes and others have billed this as somebody has perjured themselves, it's still he says, she says. And until they get proof that he, what he said is true or what she said is true, unlikely in this case, or until they prove a suborning to perjury or some other impeachable offense, uh, there is going to be no change in the White House and the people who uh, are either uh, clamoring for it, hoping for it, or saying it will happen are whistling Dixie, because it is not going to happen until there is proof of a crime, and then there will be a resignation not a moment before. That's my take on it. That's actually as much as I have to say about it. Uh, McKinney has been reduced in rank. He'll leave the Army as a Master Sergeant, and will likely have his retirement benefits cut. Uh, but he has been reprimanded and demoted, and that's all that will occur. As a matter of fact, all the charges by all the women were uh, dismissed. He was not guilty. And so the one thing they got him on was obstruction of justice in a phone call. Uh, so there you have that. Um, and as I said, in a moment we're going to get to uh, Linda Moltenhow and follow that with Dr. Tom Van Flanderen. I think you're going to find that really riveting. And I'll give you a kind of a rundown on the rest of the week as I can. If you uh, have the opportunity, go and grab a piece of paper and pencil. Linda Moulton Howe is going to be making some appearances in the next week or so uh, in Florida and then Alabama. So you might want to get a paper and pencil ready before the hour is out. We will tell you where and so forth and so on, who to call, that kind of thing. Anyway, here she comes from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, our science reporter, our environmental reporter, our investigator of crop circles, animal mutilations, things of high strangeness, indeed, a winner of several awards for her documentaries. Uh, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, here's Linda Moulton. Hi, Linda. Hi. Hi, Art. 
Well, this past week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention held the 1998 International Conference on Emerging Infectious Diseases in Atlanta. The main subject was how bacteria and viruses are spreading in unexpected ways now because of so much world travel. One case summed up the problem. Last year, an airliner took off from Argentina and stopped in Lima, Peru, to pick up meals for the flight back to the United States. Those meals were contaminated with cholera. The 80 passengers got off in Los Angeles and boarded other planes to go home. Consequently, those people became ill with cholera all over the country, creating the largest number of cholera cases at one time in the U.S. since the 1970s. CDC's Associate Director Stephen Ostros confirmed that infectious disease is now the number three killer in the United States after cancer and heart disease. He told the media, quote, Partly it's because of the globalization of disease. By airplane, no place on earth now is much more than 36 hours away from anywhere else. People are simply more mobile across borders, time zones, and environments than ever before. What worries me, Linda, is um, not only the natural possibilities, but the unnatural ones. A lot of people worry about subways and so forth for biological agents. I worry about airports. Yes. Well, and you and I both have experienced more than once getting on an airplane inside of that circulated, uh, confined air, and you get off plane and two days later you're sick. I remember telling you just prior to your last trip to Tokyo, Linda, when you get to Tokyo, you are going to get sick. That's right. And it was so bad you couldn't even talk. That's right. I completely lost my voice and for all of us, we should be uh, going through life a little more offensively now and finding something, I guess, to breathe on the planes like Michael Jackson uh, has put over his mouth. You know, um, I've been told by certain people that if you, uh, I don't know if you're supposed to do this or not, but um, that if you tell the crew, you know, the stewardess when you get on the plane, that you've got breathing problems, right? they will give you little canisters to breathe from. Well, I'll try that. That's a hint for the traveler. Yeah, I will try that. Well, diseases are also being released from rainforest destruction. And last week, a leader of Brazil's primitive Yanomami Indians pleaded for help to put out huge fires that have devastated the Amazonian region where the Indians live. For the last two months, 1.24 million acres have burned up from fires set by farmers clearing land for crops. How many acres? 1.24 million in two months. The Yanomama have enough problem, uh, have enough uh, serious problems of their own right now. Oh, at every level, from disease to every issue of survival, and the situation is out of control now because of the drought in Brazil caused by El Nino. This is the worst drought ever seen in the region. For five months, there has been no rain at all, and now even more humid rainforests are being consumed by smoke and fire. It is really, truly a tragedy that the entire planet should be concerned about. And as the world rapidly changes into the 21st century global economy and new dangers and concerns emerge about our environment, tonight I would like to help lessen fear about one issue, Project HEART, the high-frequency active auroral research program in Alaska. The idea for HARP, according to the program's manager, John Heckscher, started back in 1990 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
United States government had purchased land in Gakona, Alaska, about 200 miles northeast of Anchorage, to build an over-the-horizon radar installation as part of our Cold War defense system. When the Cold War ended, so did funding for the radar site. But ionospheric physicists talked to congressmen about their need to study the Arctic ionosphere, a region charged with the plasmas of auroras and electrical disturbances. As more satellites have been put into orbit around the Earth, ionospheric disturbances, now known as space weather, are increasingly important to understand. If there is turbulence in the ionosphere, it can affect satellite communications for television, radio, shortwave, and the military. Mm -hmm. So a congressional initiative was approved in 1990 to allocate money for ionospheric research on the abandoned over-the-horizon radar site at Gukona. Congress also asked the United States Air Force and Navy to manage HARP, but it was never an official Defense Department uh, fully formally authorized and funded program. Since then, there has been growing public confusion and controversy the past few years about what happens when HARP is turned on, mm -hmm. which has happened only two or three times a year. The last experiment was in June 1997. I wanted to talk with a scientist considered to be an expert in ionospheric physics who has no vested political interest in HARP or the military. I located Cornell University professor of electrical engineering, Michael Kelly, who also has a Ph.D. in physics from UC Berkeley. Dr. Kelly has written a textbook used throughout universities entitled The Earth's Ionosphere, Plasma Physics and Electrodynamics, published by Academic Press. Professor Kelly was at the HARP facility in Gakona, Alaska, for some of the early experiments. He said HARP's radio frequencies are from 600 kilohertz to 1.7 megahertz, radio frequencies just above the AM radio band, and not microwaves, as some misinformed media reports said in years past. Professor Kelly is now working on another ionospheric experiment at Cornell's research facility in Arecibo, Puerto Rico, where he talked with me by phone a few days ago. I asked Professor Kelly if HARP is transmitting only high-frequency radio waves, as television, radio, and short waves do, then why have some people been concerned that putting energy into the ionosphere could cause damage to the environment or be used for weather and mind control? Here is Cornell University's Professor Michael Kelly. If you go to Alaska any night of the year and lay on your back, look up at the sky, you see an aurora basically horizon to horizon even on the quiet, quietest night. And in the more typical night, you have aurora again horizon to horizon and also maybe two, three hundred kilometers north and south. So when you look at that and figure out how many square kilometers, talking about uh, 200,000 square kilometers, that you can just see with your own eyes. And every bit of that is getting more energy put in by natural phenomena than is put in in a, a small spot in the sky by by heart. So in terms of energy issues, it's absolutely a non-issue. So that, that's point number one. Uh, point number two is the effects go away. Uh, there's no long-lasting effect. There's more long-lasting effect of the aurora on the atmosphere by far, orders and orders of magnitude than, than the radio signal. Um, there is the radio signal, the voice of America, without, uh, in fact, 
doesn't transmit up, it transmits it horizontally, puts out, uh, megawatts of, of power. It's a radio transmitter. End of story. That's not some mysterious doomsday machine. It's, uh, it's a radio transmitter. It's, uh, you know, if you go to your radio station, in fact, the nearby radio station in, in Dakota, there's a high power, uh, radio station that has, you know, very large field strength in the parking lot of the high school, uh, higher than the field strength we measured on the road, uh, going by the hub facility. Uh, the same phenomenon, it's, it's electromagnetic radiation from a radio transmitter. There is no credible evidence that the aurora affects the weather. Now, the aurora is much more, uh, widespread a phenomenon than, um, the, the small amount of heating of electrons that goes on with the transmitter. And there's no, as I said, there's no credible evidence that the aurora itself has any effect on the weather. So, um, really, uh, affecting the weather on the surface of the Earth is just absolutely, completely off the wall. And nonsense when it comes to the energy that HARP is putting at this high-frequency radio signals in the ionosphere. Correct. And the, um, could you possibly describe uh, for the listener what actually is happening from the time that the radio transmitter in Dakota is turned on and aimed at some altitude in the ionosphere? What is happening? Okay, just like any other radio signal beamed upward, um, if the radio signal is below the maximum uh, of so-called plasma frequency in the ionosphere, the signal will reflect. So when you get long wave radio transmission around the world, like ham radio people use, so forth, they're doing the same thing that HARP does. They're, they have a signal such that it's low enough frequency that it slants off the ionosphere just as if it were a mirror. And if you raise the frequency up to television-type frequencies, FM radio and television, then that signal will go straight through the ionosphere, essentially leaving none of its energy behind. Now, if you just get a perfect reflection off the ionosphere, as is usually the case, then the signal hits the ionosphere, bounces off, comes back to the ground, hits the Earth, back up the ionosphere. Um, in the case of, of a higher power system like Luxembourg Radio was the first one that did this, the radio in Luxembourg, AM radio, was, was very powerful, and it started to modulate other radio stations because of its effect when it hit the ionosphere. That's how this effect was discovered. What happens is the radio wave goes up, and what causes the signal to reflect is the fact that the electrons are put in motion, and they re-radiate the signal back to the ground. That's what happens when light waves hit your mirror at home. When you look at your mirror, the light waves from your face hit the mirror, the electrons in the metal reflect the signal, and it comes back at you so you see yourself. Mm-hmm. The same happens with the ionosphere. Now, if the power is high enough, the ionosphere will, the electrons will move fast enough that they start to create their own cosmophysical uh, phenomenon that interact with the reflection process. So at some threshold, the ionosphere is no longer acts like a mirror. It acts more like an absorbing medium. And that's that boundary transition that's, that's utilized uh, by the physics of experiments on the Could this in any way be used as a military weapon? No, the military interest, as far as I understand, I don't have three points, but um, as far as I know, it's primarily for communication. The idea of this uh, modulation of ELF uh, waves to create signals to submarines is, is a credible and, and probably justifiable uh, military interest in, in hard-side science. As you may know, 
uh, even today, I think, there's uh, ELF radio transmitters uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Wisconsin. This was a, uh, a big thing in the, in the 70s and 80s. Um, in fact, some of the movies you've seen, they talk about getting the, the ELF, the ELF signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think Crimson Tide, there was mm-hmm. a little blurb on, on, the, on the ELF, uh, as they called it. Uh, that's one of the research interests of HUB is to be able to do away with ground-based transmitters, which, to be honest, if there was any effect, it'd be much more of an effect if you lived near a ground-based transmitter than if your transmitter is sitting up in the ionosphere, uh, where it's more efficiently coupled to the uh, uh, Earth ionosphere waveguide, and you don't have ground-based transmitters. So the idea here is to use the existing, already existing current system in the ionosphere and just modulate that at these ELF frequencies. And then the ELF uh, frequencies can penetrate uh, the Earth and the ocean Correct. to communicate a signal to the sun. Correct. Uh, There's also an interest in, uh, in prospecting and, and location of underground things like Saddam Hussein's bunkers and things like that. Um, so you can not only penetrate the, uh, the ocean, but you can penetrate the ground. So there's there's few physicists who use naturally occurring and, and therefore on controllable uh, ELF and ELF signals to do underground prospects. So you could uh, take HARP and modulate in the ionosphere to extreme low frequencies to look for, as it says in the Senate authorization bill, to look for underground uh, tunnels, shelters, and yep. structures. Yep. And could we, at this point, uh, be so refined with HARP that we could locate all of the underground structures in Iraq that Saddam Hussein has? Well, we had a, uh, at this point, the answer, the simple answer is no. But that's why it's called a research project. Um, in principle, I think it is possible. And um, people have been looking for underground uh, tunnels. People know, for example, where old gold mines and iron mines are in Alaska. And, you know, they've been saying, could we, could we find this? And uh, I've seen some pretty convincing evidence that, that yeah, you could uh, find a hole in the ground uh, um, by looking at the, see what happens is, the waves come down, they penetrate the earth, and they themselves get reflected. And if there's no change in conductivity of the ground, then you just get a kind of a mundane pattern. But if there's a hole in the ground or if there's some conducting material, um, then you get a change. It's like a, basically a metal detector. It's almost totally analogous to when you walk through the metal detector at the airport. All right, we're going to have to hold it right there. I'm Art Bell, and from the high desert, this is Coast to Coast AM. with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033 1-800-825-5033 west of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico 1-800-618-8255 one 800 618 
800-242-8255. Now again, here's Art Bell. Once again, here I am, and we uh, will continue with Linda Moulton Howe's interview in just a moment. Boy, do I have some bones to pick with this uh, ionospheric physicist, and we'll pick them at the end of the uh, interview. Philadelphia, to continue the interview, here is Linda Moulton Howe. Linda? Thanks, Art. Professor Kelly is explaining how extreme low frequencies can be used to look for underground tunnels, structures, and shelters and metal objects as we continue now. Totally analogous to when you walk through the metal detector at the airport, uh, the change of the magnetic field is sent because you have a, uh, some metal on your body. It's changed and then detected by, by the instrument. So that's almost a perfect analogy to our and hasn't the concern uh, been by the political activists in Alaska that if you can modulate the ionosphere uh, to an extremely low frequency signal and it beams back down to submarines, that that signal might in some way affect human minds? Uh, you know, this is just so, just so ridiculous. The signal levels are very small. Signals that are generated by this very complicated process are almost undetectable by great instruments, let alone uh, affecting the human mind. Uh, there just is no credibility to the notion that there's some attempt at mind control using these extremely low signals. If you were going to do that, you'd be much better off just to build a transmitter out of wires and put it around somewhere. You'd have a much bigger signal that you could deal with. Um, so just to get it really clear... The amount of extreme low frequency that is coming from just the uh, Schumann cavity resonance of the Earth, uh, from uh, lightning storms, auroras, uh, and everything else, adds up to a much greater signal that is overwhelming to a certain extent any ELF modulation that you have in heart and that you have to use extremely refined and sophisticated technology to even get out of the background ELF of the Earth. Uh, the signal that would come down from the ionosphere. Yep. That's in a nutshell. And the reason it's possible is that it's a known frequency. If you know, if you have a signal that basically, the natural signals are basically spread out to what we call a spectrum. So there's, if you look at it on a oscilloscope or, or on a TV screen, you see, you know, fluctuations in your eye, which were at all frequencies. If you know that you have a certain frequency, because that's the frequency that's being used that day, then you can filter the data right around that frequency and pull that signal out of, of the background noise, which is natural. So, you know, we, we make the statement, people say, well, you know, if it's varied by the noise, how can you possibly see it? But the scientists and, and, and technologists do this all the time. GPS, for example, very important uh, uh, global positioning satellite system. Um, the signal that comes from GPS, the ground receivers, your little handheld GPS thing, the, the signal is actually much less, much less by a factor of 100 and the noise level from, say, the galaxies that are also generating uh, with the magnetic waves. But because you know the character of the signal, you can use signal processing to pull that signal out. Um, the same thing is true with, with the ELF that comes from uh, from us. It's, it's a tough thing to detect, let alone uh, used to, uh, to try to control someone's behavior. One thing I do want to mention, which uh, uh, sometimes comes up and I'd like to clarify, people ask me, uh, you know, it's a legitimate question, are we, by affecting the ionosphere, are we creating ourselves some sort of health hazard much as the uh, ozone problem with fluorocarbons? Mm-hmm. And that's a great question. It's definitely worth answering. And here's, here's the answer. What protects the Earth 
is the Earth's atmosphere to those hydrants. The, the very existence of the ionosphere is an indication that the harmful rays from the sun have been absorbed. So the ionosphere is a byproduct of the yielding process. So you could, you could remove the ionosphere tomorrow and it would not affect life on the Earth because the atmosphere, which you did not remove, is there and it would just form another ionosphere. And by removing the ionosphere, you mean the strict uh, electron from the solar wind interaction with the upper atmosphere that is creating the plasma. Yeah, and it's not just the solar wind. I, in fact, even earlier I was worried that you know, when the sunlight itself is the atmosphere is when the ionosphere is formed. Okay. So it's the sunlight shining on the day side of the Earth that creates this plasma value from 70 kilometers up to 2,000. Uh, then farther out, you have solar wind interactions that can affect the sun and so forth. So by and the ionosphere is created by the absorption of harmful uh, radiation from the sun, like x-rays and, and uh, extreme ultraviolet. So that's our first line of defense from the sun's higher energy electromagnetic radiation is the upper atmosphere. And the ionosphere is a byproduct of that. When, when you absorb that energy, you strip some electrons and form the ionosphere. Now, if you make, people say, well, what, what happens if you make a hole in the ionosphere? As you can sort of do with these, uh, with these transmitters, you can sort of make a, uh, a region which you have a lower electron density. Is that letting in harmful radiation? The fact is, it's not, because the atmosphere is not affected. It can only affect the electron. And the atmosphere is still there. So if, of course, you usually do this at night, but if it was the daytime, it would just immediately uh, ionize again and uh, therefore continue to protect the Earth. So there's no, it's a very good question, but the, the answer is that there is no, the atmosphere itself does not shield the Earth from the x-rays. It's the atmosphere. And we're not affecting it. Is there any question about any unknown result or effect that could be set in motion by focusing bursts of high-frequency radio waves in the ionosphere? I don't have any idea of how that creates uh, any problem. I really don't. The, um, the power densities, as I said, even with the full heart, are comparable to your run-of-the-mill aurora. And war is a beautiful phenomenon, and, and you know, it's, like I said, wall-to-wall light, beautifully structured, and so forth. And there is no known effect of the aurora on the depth lower atmosphere. I also talked with Harp Program Manager John Hesher. He is an electrical engineer at the Air Force Research Laboratory, formerly known as the Phillips Lab at Hanscom Air Force Base in Massachusetts. He said that Congress has funded HARP only in bits and pieces of pork barrel money known as plus-up, ranging annually from $2 million to $11 million. Each year, he's uncertain what funding he will have to keep building the phased array antennas and transmitters or what experiments can be paid for, although they have done one ELS underground test. Project HARP manager, John Hexer. As I say, it's only a quarter bill, and we've been working on it 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, See, the way the money comes is, is, is very, you never, we don't ever know how much money we're going to get. Each year. That's correct. In fact, I don't even have 98 money yet, all of it. I, I, I've only gotten like a third of it. 
And who keeps changing and putting in these numbers? Congress. And that's the unknown as far as you're concerned. Well, um, we know where where it comes from. It comes out of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Mm -hmm. But but, but you see, everybody votes on that. All senators. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not one one senator may put it in, but another senator from another state will put something else in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... You know, that's how politics works. Yeah, you vote for this, I'll vote for that. Yeah. And when it's when it's fully constructed, uh, the antenna will cover about 10 acres. And when do you think it'll be done? <laughs> at the rate at the rate we're being funded by Congress, um, I'm the, I will have retired. <laughs> well, if it is one quarter done after 10 years, <laughs> yes, you're talking you about 40 years. <laughs> that's right. Okay, well, then going back to uh, June of 1997 and before, how were you doing research uh, for this goal of being able to find underground tunnel structures and shelters? You put the ELF modulation on the on the radio waves that you're sending up, and the atmosphere essentially demodulates that and re-radiates the modulation frequency, not the HF, mm-hmm. but the modulation frequency which in this case was ELF. Now we have a very, 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 very weak ELF signal. But we have the advantage that we know when it was generated. So we can use a very sophisticated receiver on the ground uh, called a correlation receiver. And what it does, it integrates the noise out and build the signal up so we can see that we have a signal, even though it's very, very, very weak. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of signals that we use uh, to look for uh, underground anomalies. And what we did was we looked uh, to see if we could image a mine shaft in Alaska. We make measurements all over the surface above the mine, take the data and invert it, and we can if we're lucky, get a an image of that mine. We were, we were able to do that. One Anchorage, Alaska resident who has spearheaded citizen concerns about harps having potentially dangerous military applications is Nick Begich, past president of the Alaska Federation of Teachers. Mr. Begich wrote and published the book, Angels Don't Play This Harp. I shared the comments of Professor Kelly and John Hexer with him and suggested that HARP might not be such a concern if it's only 25% constructed and operates transmitters two or three times a year. Nick Begich. You know, I would say that, you know, at this point, the fact that it's not fully powered is, uh, you know, it, it's certainly um, a relief. I mean, in, in the sense that what could possibly happen with a, with a bigger system. But I don't think it, it, it takes us out of the woods. The only difference between this and other projects like this is it discovered at its infancy rather than at its termination or at its end point. We would agree that the defense applications, as we've articulated them, if they can be done safely, are certainly the kinds of applications that we would like to see in our defense arsenal. But what we would not like to see is undue risk, the kind of undue risk that the military is famous for now uh, for the other programs that they've developed. And, and I would also agree that the Cold War is over and that maybe the need for developing sophisticated weapons technologies um, are not there. If it's to protect satellites, although some have raised the possibility uh, that these could, in fact, damage 
um, satellites. In fact, the military talks about uh, the use of these systems for anti-satellite uh, applications. So again, you know, the question of are we enhancing the situation or are we harming it, and, and we think that deserves a lot broader scope uh, than what the military offers in, in this program. All right. And uh, one footnote, John Hexer said he will have another HARP open house in Gakona, Alaska this coming August, that everyone from anywhere is welcome, that they can come and walk anywhere they want to around the transmitters, talk to scientists, and there will be people there to ask uh, and answer all questions. All right, Linda, I have a couple of comments. Uh, one is I invited John Hexer uh, who will certainly give you the party line because he directs the project on HARP, uh, to debate Nick Begich, and he declined. That was, uh, oh, well over a year ago now, and I had quite a long talk with him, and uh, he did not want to have to answer questions. Now, with uh, respect to Professor Kelly, I was sitting here pounding the table. You couldn't hear it because I had the mic down. Um, here are the questions uh, that I would have. Number one, he laid out an analogy um, of a radio station uh, and said he made field strength uh, readings in the parking lot that were a lot higher in the radio station than they were near the HARP project. Of course that is true. A radio station radiates horizontal energy right. uh, to be heard by the local community. It intends to radiate uh, uh, in that direction. HARP, on the other hand, Linda, straight radiates up. straight up. Moreover, and much more importantly, and this is uh, something you need or I need to ask him about, one of us does, uh, the HARP antenna array is designed to do the exact opposite of what normal antenna arrays are, even ones that radiate to the ionosphere. For example, uh, normally we radiate a very broad signal from the ground, and, uh, I'm sorry, a very narrow signal from the ground, and by the time it gets to the ionosphere, it is very broad. In the case of HARP, the antenna array uh, is the exact opposite. It is designed to have a very broad uh, signal from the ground, from the array itself. Over a, that's why they put it over a, a big uh, um, a piece of uh, geography. And then end up as a pinpoint of energy at the ionosphere. So uh, the professor was wrong with respect to his analogy of a radio station. There is, there is no possible way that that analogy works. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, when we get to 100 billion watts of power, which is the final stage of HARP, um, then you have real ionospheric uh, concerns, and I believe safety and health concerns. Now, I understand that they're modulating a small amount of ELF, but they're modulating that to get to an underground tunnel or bunker right through us. And we have reaction to ELF. There's no question about it. Now, those are my comments, mm -hmm. and I, I think they deserve answers uh, from the professor. His analogy just was not technically accurate. Well, fortunately, as John Hexer pointed out, the funding and the construction is going slowly, and that uh, tonight I talked with Nick Begich, and he would like to see some sort of an open forum organized there, perhaps in association with this August Open House, in which John Hexer or somebody who works with him, uh, John Kelly, other scientists, Nick Begich, uh, that they could actually do some sort of a forum 
uh, and that we do have the time now when things really are not at any kind of an intense development level uh, to get more answers and pose more questions. And I will get in touch again with Professor Kelly on these issues. All right. Um, I've got an announcement for you, Linda. Let me make that. Uh, Linda Moulton-Howe is going to be speaking at the Project Awareness Conference in Pensacola Beach, Florida. That'll be this coming Saturday and Sunday, this coming weekend, March 21 and 22. She'll be talking about crop circle symbols, the human abduction syndrome, and government knowledge and cover-ups based on her new book, Glimpses of Other Realities, Volume 2, High Strangeness. Headed for nationwide bookstores in a couple of weeks, the publisher, Paper Chase Press, now taking advance orders for that book at a toll-free number, 1-800-658-9959. That's a new number, 1-800-658-9959, after the conference on Sunday. Linda will then be in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama, I guess it is, <laughs> Mobile, Alabama, at the Books A Million store, that's at 3960 Airport Boulevard at 3 p.m. to share information from her new book and to sign autographs. There's your chance, folks. That's Sunday, March 22nd. It's Books a Million in Mobile, Alabama at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at 3960 Airport Boulevard. And we're woefully short on time now, Linda. Well, I sure do look forward to uh, all of our listeners, anyone who can make uh, the conference, the book signing, and... Uh, I'm glad that we were able to spend this time tonight, uh, Art, on this important harp issue. Indeed. Uh, and we will see you this coming Sunday on Dreamland, right? That's right. I'll be reporting from Pensacola Gulf Breeze and by the live. Way, and by the way, if anybody would like to um, send Linda a fax on the, on the harp project business that we just got a little contentious about, <laughs> you, can, you can do it at area code um, 215 491 9842. Right, Thanks. Linda? Thank you, Art. See you Sunday. Yeah, happy St. Pat's Day. Have a, have a good trip to Florida. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. When we come back, Professor Tom Van Flandre. I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. It's a naval battle up. From the Kingdom of Nye, this is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. First time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again is Art. Boy, are you in for a treat in a few moments. Tom Van Flandren, doctor, professor, received his Ph.D. degree in astronomy from Yale University in 1969. And we're going to be talking about Mars, comets, exploding planets, exploding universes, you know, the Big Bang, uh, what's on Mars, what we're about to find out about what's on Mars, that sort of thing should be more than just a little interesting. And by the way... If you want to read uh, uh, some of uh, what you're about to hear, I suggest you go to my website and uh, scroll on down to the guest area and click on Dr. Van Flandren's uh, name. It'll take you over to his website and you will learn. It's uh, very well done, actually. So, all of that ahead of us. Yes, I saw the Kathleen Willie interview on 60 Minutes, and yes, I did believe her. Uh, she told a very reasonable, credible um 
story, I thought. However, and this is a big however, those 60 minutes said one of them has committed perjury. Until that is proven, it is not a crime. And as far as I know, there are no witnesses. So from a practical point of view, it turns into a he said, she said situation. And until uh, something is proven, I think that you've still got President Clinton uh, right where he is. His detractors are saying, that's it, he's gone, he's going to have to resign. Don't you believe it? Unless they come up with suborning to perjury, unless they come up with a crime that has been committed, one that can be proved, then, uh, and then he's going to stay right where he is, would be my view. So, yes, I did see it. Yes, I did find it credible. No, I don't see that any sort of crime can be um, drawn from this as yet, one that would pressure a resignation or failing that, uh, support a um, impeachment. Uh, the Sanyo 917, remember the other day we spent, I don't know how long, uh, with our guest from SETI, uh, talking about spread spectrum. Uh, it is, uh, <laughs> it's ten times uh, more powerful than a normal cordless phone. I'm talking about the 917, Sanyo 917 digital spread spectrum cordless phone. Uh, there simply is not a better phone on the face of the earth today. It's one seventy nine ninety five. Now, I'll tell you what, Seagrain Company is a record so far from the phone to the base of 5.8 miles. This is a cordless phone, a cordless phone with perfect audio, and they have managed to go uh, 5.8 miles from the base. Digital encoding of this sort, of course, means nobody can listen to your conversations, not even our favorite government. <laughs> it's the final, finest cordless phone made today, period. It's one seventy nine ninety five. dollars uh, We have one other version. In Just in case you want hands-free operation, it's remarkable. The Seagrain Company has converted the phone, so you plug a little headset into it, and uh, the headset has a mic, and you don't even have to use your hands. You, plug, you, you just uh, plug it in and then uh, flip the phone onto your belt or whatever, and you can walk around talking on the phone using both your hands for whatever else you want to use them for. That's up to you. That's a very special phone for people with special needs. Three forty nine ninety five. The number to call at seven thirty in the morning uh, for either one or both of these versions would be one eight hundred five two two eight eight six three. If you demand the best, here it is one. 800-522-8863. The Sea Crane Company. Add zero zero. Well, you want the ignition system Art Bell has on his hot rod metro. It's like a heart transplant for your car. That's 1-800-627-8800. And check out their webpage at www.jacobselectronics.com. Now comes Professor Tom Van Flandren. Tom received his Ph.D. degree in astronomy from Yale University in 1969. He spent 20 years at the U.S. Naval Observatory, where he became the chief of the Celestial Mechanics Branch. In 91, Tom formed a Washington, D.C.-based organization, Meta Research, 
to foster research into ideas not otherwise supported solely because they conflict with mainstream theories in astronomy. Tom is editor of the Meta Research Bulletin, which specializes in reporting anomalies, evidence that does not fit with standard theories in the field. He is also a research associate at the University of Maryland, working on improving the accuracy of the global positioning system. North Atlantic Books is the publisher of his 1993 book, Dark Matter, Missing Planets, and New Comets. <laughs> and it all fits together, believe me. As with his research papers, the book is critical of many standard models in astronomy, such as the Oort Cloud, the Dirty Snowball, and Big Bang theories. Tom just returned from an expedition for 100 people to the Galapagos Islands for viewing the February 26th total solar eclipse. During his career as a professional research astronomer, Tom has been honored by a prize from the Gravity Research Foundation, served on the Council of American Astronomical Society's Division on Dynamic Astronomy, uh, taught astronomy at the University of South Florida and the Navy uh, Department, uh, and to a Navy Department employee group, has been consultant to NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, has done several spots for the Project Universe series, that continues to air occasionally on public television. Here he is, Dr. Van Flandren. Uh, doctor, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Art. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, boy, am I glad to have you here. There's been uh, a lot of news about you uh, floating around the scientific uh, community for some time now uh, with regard to Mars. And I guess I'll begin with that. Uh, Lindemold Howe interviewed uh, Dr. Malin with regard to the imaging of, uh, of Mars by the mission that we have there now. Um, so I wonder if you can catch us up. Uh, I mean, I, I, let's begin with what the mission is, what you know about the current status of the mission, and we'll go from there. Okay, well, uh, last um, year we sent uh, two spacecraft to Mars, uh, the first one uh, had the lander, uh, the Pathfinder, as it's called, uh, that took the shots of one particular spot on Mars uh, where the, the uh, lander happened to come down, and we we got uh, photos and some actual measurements of the uh, contents of, of various rocks on the surface of Mars at that spot. I understand the... Uh... The craft, by the way, the little vehicle is deader than a doornail now, declared so the other day. That's right, yes. Uh, it was uh, only expected to have a finite lifetime until its batteries ran out. But we learned quite a bit uh, about surface at that spot, including uh, about the huge, huge flood, uh, unlike anything uh, we seem to have ever had here on Earth uh, that must have occurred on Mars uh, that left uh, sand dunes uh, 60 feet high in the and uh, his ripples. And that's a big flood. Uh, that's a huge flood. Was that the biggest surprise, do you think? Uh, probably, yes. The, the, uh, they knew about the flood before, but this startling local evidence of just how massive and how sudden it was uh, was beyond anybody's expectations. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean Mars had an atmosphere? Uh, it would seem so. Uh, indications are that 
At one time, Mars had an atmosphere uh, at least as dense as Earth's atmosphere today. Really? Um, it's worth asking what what doctor could uh, strip away an, an atmosphere as dense as or ours from a planet. What could do that? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a package uh, of evidence about Mars uh, that fits right in with a completely different line of evidence uh, that there have has been one or more planets in our solar system in the past that are no longer present today. Uh, and what we seem to have left behind in their place is, uh, is streams of asteroids that orbit the sun. Mm-hmm. I believe your, um, your contention is that these planets, uh, one or more, blew, actually blew up. That's right. How, Doctor, does a planet blow up? Well, there are a number of theories about uh, what causes both planets and, on the other hand, uh, stars to blow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these theories are incomplete. There is, uh, it may surprise some of your listeners to know that he, even though we have no doubt at all that stars blow up, uh, those are called novas for sure. uh, average-sized stars and supernovas for large stars. Sure. Uh, we still don't have a complete theory uh, of these explosions, but it's obvious they do happen, and a lot of uh, of models uh, have been proposed, which are out there for testing. What would what would be your best guess? Um, in the case of planets, uh, to give just an example out of out of many for small planets, um, we know that conditions are very intense in the core of a planet. The pressures and temperatures are very high. Um, when uh, when you take various kinds kinds of chemicals and drastically change the temperature and pressure, they can undergo uh, a sudden change called a change of state. It's like what happens to water when you freeze it to ice. Right. Uh, it's still H2O, but it's in a completely different chemical form. Right. It's now solid instead of liquid. Um, changes of state uh, can also occur in the core of a planet when you increase the temperature or pressure uh, beyond certain limits. Uh, and, of course, there we're talking about heavy elements, such as iron and uranium. But a sudden change uh, of state in the core of a planet can cause either an implosion or an explosion, depending upon the type of change it is. Bad for us either way. Uh, the, yes, that's right. As inhabitants of a planet, we have uh, certainly a vested interest in stability. <laughs> we do. Um, what do we know about the center of our Earth? I think we know more about Mars than we do what's down in the middle of the Earth. What is there, do you think? Is it um, molten? Is it an iron core? I've heard all kinds of theories of rotating iron cores and molten stuff. And what's down there, anyway? I'm uh, sorry, for Earth or for Mars? Earth. Okay. Uh, in Earth, uh, yes, uh, as you go deeper and deeper, the weight of this, the layers above adds more and more pressure, so it's getting hotter and more and more packed, denser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time you get down uh, uh, through the, the mantle, which is what the, the layer is above the core, uh, you cross the boundary and you're uh, in the core, which is uh, molten, uh, temperatures of millions of degrees, uh, pressures unlike anything we experience here on the surface, uh, and primarily iron, although uh, the density isn't right for pure iron, so it's mixed in with uh, some uranium and very heavy stuff, and also some lighter stuff. Hydrogen, perhaps from uh, from water, has been proposed as 
one of the lighter ingredients in the core. Okay, do we know this for sure, or is this the best guess? Uh, this is best guess. That is, we can make measurements of uh, certain properties, such as the density from the gravity field, uh, such as uh, the, the where the how deep the uh, transition is from the mantle to the core through seismic waves from earthquakes that mm-hmm. pass right through the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we can make all kinds of measurements, but then from those measurements, we're just making our best guess of what the chemical composition uh, is and what the conditions are like down there. All right, let us presume, for the sake of the conversation, that is exactly the case. What kind of change of state uh, could occur, and what could cause such a change of state that would so destabilize a planet that it would implode or explode? Well, uh, planets... I'm taking, uh, taking ours as an example, uh, as you have described it. Uh, you would have to gradually be changing the conditions uh, to cause something to happen, uh, because uh, if a planet reaches a, a steady state where there's a balance between heat intake and heat radiated, uh, then not much uh, is likely to happen to it, uh, even in the deep interior. Uh, however, we know uh, from actual measurements of the outer planets in the solar system today, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, uh, that these planets are radiating more heat back into space, in Jupiter's case, twice as much heat is radiated back into space than it's presently taking in from the sun. So there have to be processes going on inside the planet that are generating heat too, and at a rate that is uh, at least as strong as uh, the heat coming in from the sun. In the Earth, there is also an excess of heat outflow from heat intake, but it's relatively small. Uh, the dominant source of the Earth's heat is the, the sun, uh, and the extra heat from the interior is believed to be caused from uh, the decay of radioactive elements in the deep interior of the Earth. So it would be your view that though we're not perfectly stable, we're probably stable enough that we're not going to blow up or implode? Uh, that's right, yes. Uh, uh, we, we should reassure the audience that certainly the Earth is stable enough that nothing is uh, likely to happen in the next uh, Good. thousands or millions of years. Glad to hear that. Now, um, again, let's go back to Mars. Something took Mars' atmosphere. Your, um, your theory is that there were other planets nearby and that one of them or more of them blew up in the manner you described. That's right. And the key about Mars is that apparently Mars was a moon of, of this planet uh, formerly uh, orbiting the sun in the orbit where Mars is now, uh, the planet that blew up. Um, it was a, a larger planet than either Earth or Mars, and Mars was apparently a moon. It probably had one or more other moons as well. Uh, and uh, they, the key, the, the chief piece of evidence that Mars was right there at the time of the explosion is that one half of Mars, and it's almost exactly one half, uh, has been uh, pelted so intensely that the craters on that half of Mars are shoulder to shoulder so intensely that any new crater that forms today has to destroy old craters underneath it. There's no room for more craters. They're that dense. Wow. The other hemisphere, on the other hand, is relatively sparse in cratering. So one side of it, it's like one side of it got hit by a gigantic shotgun. That's right. And, correspondingly, the crust of Mars on that side is built up to a thickness of 20 kilometers thicker than the crust wow. on the opposite side of Mars. 
I believe you also think that uh, this exploding planet accounts for uh, the majority of comets that we see that return to this area, the scene of the crime, so to speak, again and again and again, as well as asteroids, uh, which are big chunks of rock and come back again and again and again. Uh, is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. Uh, reconstructing the history of uh, the solar system as best we can from evidence from comets, from asteroids, and from meteorites, uh, the, the bits of, of uh, asteroids and comets that land here on Earth where we can actually take them in the laboratory and measure them, uh, reconstructing this and, and also using the geological record and, and rock samples from the moon that astronauts have brought back, we've been able to put together a chronology, and it kind of looks as though uh, the main asteroid belt, the gap between Mars and Jupiter, um, contained one large planet up until probably uh, a few hundred million years ago uh, when it apparently blew up forming 80% of the asteroids of the main belt. Uh, then about 65 million years ago, that's the, uh, that date is <clears throat> the, uh, the same as the date of the death of the dinosaurs on Earth. Apparently, now, now, isn't that an interesting coincidence? Uh, yeah. <laughs> In other words, you're suggesting that this large planet, of which Mars was a moon, blew up, created comets, created asteroids and uh, uh, threw off a whole bunch of stuff all at once, and that occurred at the same time that our friends, the dinosaurs, uh, died during that... Uh, uh, Tunguska, was it? Uh, no, Tunguska... Oh, no, KT the event. KT, uh, K -K that's right. Thank you, the KT, KT boundary. Uh, exactly so. Uh, you know, there, there, all the talk right now in the in the field is about the Chicxulub crater uh, in Yucatan, but... Yes, there are <clears throat> there are six major impact craters uh, scattered around the Earth that are dated from the same epoch. Plus, uh, the one of the the largest episodes of volcanism in the history of the Earth, the Deccan Traps in India, mm. all occurred at the same time. Changes in the atmospheres and oceans globally. I was amused because um, I, I think, of course, that uh, the Earth was suffering from this planetary explosion and not just from a chance single large impact uh, at Chicxulub. Um, but there was a recent NASA survey uh, down there where they were trying to find more samples of meteorites from the uh, from the big impact in Mexico. And in the course of looking for uh, for debris from the from the large impact, they discovered two additional craters from the same epoch uh, down in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So uh, right around the same time. Mars got hit, we got hit, and uh, no doubt other planets got hit as well. Uh, even, our, right. even our own moon, presumably. That's right. Yeah, and that was uh, from the event 65 million years ago, which was the explosion of the parent of Mars, and that would have been the one that pelted uh, Mars on one side, blew away most of its atmosphere, and... It would have been... Uh, Mars would have been, from space, a blue planet? Uh... Mars is a red planet. I, I, well, I understand red now. Uh, Doctor, hold on for just a moment. We'll be right back. This is Coast to Coast AM.
Bell in the Kingdom of Nye on the Wild Card Line at area code 702-727-1295. That's area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is Dr. Tom Van Flandren is my guest, and he'll be back in a moment. Just a brief note, uh, Art, greetings from Fairbanks, Alaska. The solar wind or something must be howling up there. We're being treated to one of the best displays of the Northern Lights aurora I've ever seen. That would be in my 22 years in Alaska. Sorry to be missing it. Somebody get out there with a camera and send me a photo. <laughs> ben Flandron. And, Doctor, when I said uh, was Mars blue, uh, back when it had uh, water, uh, apparently a lot of water, and uh, lots of atmosphere, Surely, at least in portions of the planet where there was uh, lots of oxygen and lots of water, it wouldn't have been all red. Uh, yes, I, I uh, see the picture you're uh, painting there. Uh, however, that also wouldn't produce a massive flood uh, on this scale either. And probably uh, the evidence tells us that uh, Mars couldn't have had stable oceans for very long geologically. Rather than have oceans uh, of its own at all, I think it's more likely uh, that the uh, the water uh, that produced these floods was itself the result of one of these explosions. Uh, actually, a later one than the one we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but it, it did at one time have an atmosphere. Uh, do we have any idea what it would have been composed of primarily? Well, the present atmosphere, uh, the main ingredient is carbon dioxide. And uh, that may be uh, a, a leftover residue of the original atmosphere. So uh, carbon dioxide may have been the principal ingredient there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's interesting to consider what could destroy a planet's atmosphere. Now, obviously, uh, your theory is, I guess, that this uh, planet exploded thundering uh, Mars, uh, which was very close, with all of this material and I suppose just blowing the atmosphere away, is that? That's right, yes. And, and, <laughs> really. and producing uh, a, a sudden tilt of the pole of Mars as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is a very contentious issue with uh, your colleagues. Uh, are you beginning to get some support for this theory? I mean, as they look at the fact that, uh, gee, all these dirty snowballs keep returning, these comets and these uh, rocks uh, keep returning. Uh, it must mean that they were once in the area in some other form, and so that seems like pretty good, uh, pretty good science. Uh, what do other astronomers say when confronted with your idea? Uh, yes, uh, well, there are a lot of um, specific questions that arise. Uh, there is no one objection uh, to the idea that has persisted over the years. Uh, uh, each objection that has been raised has been answered, and as a result, uh, papers on the subject uh, have passed peer review and are in the technical literature, even though they always get a lot of criticism uh, in the review process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, would it be possible that something um, could collide with our Earth that would have the same rough effect on our atmosphere as um, whatever hit Mars had on that atmosphere? Um, well, to lose uh, 99% of your atmosphere would require uh, a blast uh, relatively close by. 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, Earth is not so situated uh, right now that that uh, an explosion of anything except the sun itself could do that kind of damage here. So I think uh, that we're not in, in danger of suffering the same fate uh, that Mars did. But Mars was just a moon of this planet that blow up, and when your parent planet blows up, that's a, that's big trouble for the for the moon. It is, but uh, let us define big trouble. If we were hit by, say, an asteroid five miles wide, made of very dense material, uh, what would the result be? Uh, the result would be uh, devastation of the biosphere. Um, there, there would be, uh, of course, a, a huge impact crater in a, w- one locale, such as the Chicxulub crater that we mentioned in, in the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that would send a lot of, of dust and debris up into the atmosphere, and there would be uh, global darkening and nuclear winters, uh, so to speak, uh, for, for several years, and it would kill a lot of vegetation, a lot of life, uh, both in, uh, on land and in the oceans. Uh, but it would probably not be fatal to life on Earth. It would just be uh, very unpleasant for a very long time. Well, there are two possibilities, uh, one more likely than the other. Uh, the first is that it would, it would hit water. We are two-thirds water. Better chance it's going to hit water, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, now, if it hit water, something five miles wide, what would happen? Say it came down in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, well, it would still um, churn up uh, a lot of debris into the atmosphere because uh, the oceans itself uh, are barely five miles thick uh, in places. Uh, but, of course, uh, the, the principal thing it's going to do is cause a huge tidal wave to sweep over the, uh, the coastal regions of all the continents. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, depending on the size of what hit us, if we were hit, um, most of the uh, plant and animal life on Earth could go the way of the dinosaurs. Uh, yes, uh, that's true. If uh, something as large as five to ten miles uh, were to hit Earth today, uh, we'd be in serious trouble as far as the, the biosphere goes. Uh, luckily, impacts of objects that large are, are in the category of uh, one every 50 million years or so on average. Uh, so I don't think that uh, impacts that big are something that we ought to stay up nights uh, worrying about because, um, first, um, the impacts are very rare, and second, uh, objects that large we have probably discovered most of by now. Mm-hmm. It's the objects that are one mile big, such as uh, that one that made the news last week. I was about to bring that up. Um, yes, it was very interesting. Everybody got a sort of a a quiet scare, something that's going to happen 30 years away, perhaps. Uh, now we think that it's not going to happen. 600,000 miles is what NASA says. Um, anyway, the point is that I interviewed Alan Hale um, that day, actually the next day, and Alan said, yes, but we've only identified one out of ten uh, objects of about that size, he estimated, one out of ten. So there's a pretty good chance the other nine are going to get you unless you identify them uh, one, eventually. That's right. Uh, yes, his figures are, are very close to on target there. We, we have discovered almost 200 objects of that size or larger, which are potential threats to Earth. Um, and from the rate of discovery and the frequency of duplicate discoveries, we can estimate that there are about ten times that many waiting to be discovered. 
uh, where we don't have, uh, where we've no one on Earth has ever seen any trace uh, of the objects yet they're orbiting out there, and uh, can usually only be discovered when they happen by chance to swing rel relatively close to Earth. I have uh, quoted you a number of times recently, and I hope uh, fairly accurately. Um, you have said that, I, I think you've said, uh, that you believe in the region of Cydonia, the uh, phase on Mars, the other objects, that society had to better prepare itself, because when we get good, clear images, God, I hope we do, of Cydonia, uh, it is going to prove, you believe, that the objects there are not natural objects. Is that a fair rendition of what you have said? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, the tests of artificial versus natural origin for the objects in the Cydonia area of Mars, uh, there are eight such tests, uh, have already indicated uh, to uh, the satisfaction of... Uh, of myself and, and many colleagues, uh, that these objects are likely to turn out to be artificial, which was a great surprise. Mm. But uh, still, one has to propose the test, do the experiments, and see what the results are. And now all the tests that have been proposed are indicating artificial origin. All right. If, can you give sort of a 101 to people of why you believe that, uh, how you came up with the numbers that you came up with, why you believe this. I mean, it's an amazing thing to contemplate that uh, that face was put there to be seen from space. Uh, why do you believe that, Doctor? What's the supporting evidence? Well, indeed, uh, it, it is a surprise. And uh, I was uh, originally the author uh, or the, uh, the one in the middle of the 100 to 1 bet. Uh, to, uh, to, did I mention that uh, to your audience before? Uh, one of uh, uh, one of our more convinced colleagues uh, offered to bet at 101 odds that <clears throat> Cydonia, the face, would turn out to be an artificial structure, and I recommended a neut neutral position rather than uh, taking a, a, a position until the before the evidence was in because that creates biases. Yes. Uh, and while I was discussing that on online on the internet, one of my more skeptical astronomer colleagues offered to bet anyone at 100 to 1 odds that, that Cydonia was of natural origin. And uh, I took both ends of the bet to make the point that, uh, <laughs> uh, of course, for every dollar bet both ways, I'm going to be $99 richer, but I, I thought both sides were going to extremes based on the evidence at the time. Uh, but now some new, new evidence has come in, and I think that we now do have uh, enough information to make that call. All right, I'd like to hear what that is, and I'm sure everybody would. In other words, what could uh, come in, uh, evidence, what kind of evidence could come in to so quickly and radically change your mind? Uh, Pull you off the fence. <laughs> uh, let me mention first one of the, uh, one of the uh, lines of evidence uh, that I mentioned uh, myself as a possible test, but others did the work on and then I'll tell you the, the one where I did the work. Okay. Um, uh, the, the, one of the tests was bilateral symmetry. We originally saw only half of the face, uh, one eye socket, uh, the bridge of the nose, uh, part of the mouth, uh, and the headrest on one side. And uh, with that view only, we were able to make a simple prediction. Uh, the other invisible side that was in shadow uh, would, uh, if, the, if this were 
by chance uh, a feature that happened to resemble half a human face. Uh, the other side would, would be random desert sand or piles of rubble or rock or mm -hmm. meteor craters or whatever, but it would not be a mirror image face. Right. Uh, but now we have computer enhance, enhancements of images taken at a higher sun angle, and we can see detail in that shadowed side, and even the skeptics uh, like Mike Malin agree that it bears a passable resemblance to a symmetric human face. Nevertheless, in an interview with Linda Howe recently, uh, he suggested the odds of it being not a natural object uh, would be in the order of about 55 million to one. Uh, yes, a, a fallacy that I've commented on myself uh, many times uh, in, in most recently in a colloquium to NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, there's a very big difference between uh, long odds against something and uh, something where the odds are unknown. Um, in this case, we do, don't have enough information to even begin to estimate odds because we don't know the probability that the galaxy is inhabited, uh, that the uh, that all the terrestrial planets have already been explored by other beings in the past. For all we know, all of the galaxy has already been explored, and the probability of finding artifacts on any one of them is nearly 100%. Mm -hmm. All right, but let's stay with Mars for a second in the face and the uh, other objects, the pyramid uh, objects and so forth and so on. Uh, okay, now the new evidence that's come along uh, was uh, in part thanks to one of your listeners uh, in, in, a, really? in, a, in a past show. Um, uh, someone uh, call, wrote in to, uh, to, uh, to me... Uh, uh, on the internet, uh, following a discussion that we had about the exploded planet hypothesis and Mars, and he said, "Well, gee, if uh, uh, what about Cydonia? Um, we weren't talking about that in particular, but he said, what about Cydonia? Uh, maybe the exploded planet is what did in the builders uh, of those objects if they were built." And he said, "In that case, the building must have taken place. The building of the objects must have taken place before." that big pole shift oh, on yes. Mars, Indeed. which uh, regular Martian geologists have pu published uh, in the literature. So in other words, you are now leaning toward the concept that um, there was a Martian civilization, some sort of uh, intelligence on Mars. It would take that to build that, uh, if indeed it is not natural. Uh, it, it, it assumes that either there were Martians or... Uh, that somebody came by and built it there. But you lean toward the, the, the idea that uh, there were, in fact, Martians. Uh, well, actually, we'll see in a second when I develop the line of evidence that probably it was not indigenous Martians. Okay. Uh, but indeed, there would have had to have been builders. Uh, and the, uh, the interesting thing was um, on Mars today, the face... Uh, if it's supposed to have been built and looked like a face, it uh, doesn't really uh, uh, serve the purpose because it's not built right side up. It's tipped over a 31-degree angle, and if you wanted, to, wanted it to look like a face, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. uh, it can't be seen from the Earth or any other planet uh, because we're too far away, even with our biggest telescopes. Uh, it can't be seen from the ground on Mars. Who is this supposed to uh, have been built for? And... if uh, the only place you can see it from is, is uh, above Mars in orbit or on a passing spacecraft. If it's supposed to be viewed as a face from there, uh, why would you put it on a conspicuous place like the equator of Mars where you can see it from uh, any approach direction rather than 
at a random place like 41 degrees north latitude where it is. Mm-hmm. Well, the answer to that suddenly popped out when we looked at the old position of the Mars pole. Because lo and behold, we took the coordinates of the old pole. As oh, my God. I, I know right where you're going. You're saying it was on the equator. It was exactly on the Martian equator before this pole shift. And with the correct orientation, right side up. Oh, my. And. Oh, my, my. <laughs> with Mars as a moon of the parent planet, it would have been built so as to be visible from the parent planet. So all these little pieces of the puzzle, all these God. mysteries, suddenly clear up. Um, how far would you estimate that Mars would have been? We are 250,000 miles roughly from our moon. How yes. far would Mars have been from its parent? Probably of the order of 50 to 100,000 kilometers. And from that distance, under those conditions, from the equator, it would have been completely visible. Uh, it would have been, uh, that's a good point, it would have been visible in binoculars, uh, but... Uh, there are two uh, two possibilities that could enhance its view from its parent planet, although but binoculars would be sufficient. Uh, one is that uh, you could have illuminated it so that when it was nighttime on Mars, uh, imagine us building something on our own moon to be visible from yes, Earth. That's exactly what I was about to suggest, uh, that one day uh, we may in fact build something on the moon mm-hmm. to be seen from Earth. That's right. It's, it's totally... A credible idea. And if we put it on the dark side and illuminate it, then it will stand out uh, on its own. (sighs) So, now I think I understand. You are suggesting that this was built by the people who lived on the parent planet. Yes, that's right. Or the beings, I guess I should say. Uh, Yes, that's what seems to make most sense. Uh, And uh, Mars uh, was was a moon of that planet, just as our moon... (sighs) Uh, orbits the Earth today. Would you imagine that they built that face um, as a replica of themselves or possibly as a deity that they would have worshipped? Well, that's an interesting point because uh, the face looks like a human face rather than an alien face. And um, one of the interesting lines of conjecture to follow uh, from this, and this is just conjecture now, we're going beyond uh, the realm where the, the, the facts can take us. I understand. Um, if it looks like a human face, and coincidentally, uh, we didn't finish the chronology of explosions, but apparently the most recent uh, of these explosions dates from 3.2 million years ago. Uh, if that's the one that produced the final pole shift uh, on Mars, then uh, that would be- mean that possibly... The, uh, the the inhabitants uh, of of this uh, uh, the, the inhabitants who built this uh, this structure on Mars may have been looking for a new home as recently as three million years ago, and uh, that's just the date uh, as nearly as we can estimate it for the origin of the hominid species here on Earth. <laughs> Missing link and all uh, is about three million years ago. Uh, so this conjectural line of evidence suggests that maybe. They are us. Yes. Maybe we evolved somewhere else and transferred to this planet. Um, well, now you're, you've really got some people angry. <laughs> <laughs> it does, however, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it does make sense. It really does make sense. Now, 
I take it that you have run this by some of your peers, and yeah. I wonder what sort of reaction you're... Well, I'll tell you what. We're, we're at the top of the hour. This is a lot of information, and I, I want to I be sure I understand it. So when we come back from the break, it's a good long one for you, we will again uh, roll over the evidence, uh, the new evidence that causes Dr. Van Flandren to suggest... The world had better get ready for a surprise on Mars. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. You want the most for your money. Please limit your faxes to one or two pages. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is. My guest is uh, Dr. Tom Van Flanderen. It's a serious oh my God moment. We'll roll over it again for those of you uh, who have the misfortune of just joining the program. Oh my. Wait till you hear this. <laughs> and then we'll, uh, we'll move from there. That's 1-800-232-5665. All right, back now to Dr. Van Flanderen, and there will be some who just unfortunately joined at this hour in Los Angeles, and I don't want them to miss out. Basically, uh, you contend that, there was a, uh, that Mars was once, once the moon of a larger planet, uh, which exploded. Uh, now, uh, that, when that explosion occurred, it uh, literally devastated Mars, stripped away... Uh, the atmosphere, large floods occurred on Mars, and now we observe this face on Mars, uh, which you think um, was indeed intended to be seen from the mother planet, the one that blew up, and you, you, you said that uh, it is at 44 degrees. Why, you said, would anybody put it there? It doesn't make sense. But when you look at the polar shift that occurred, um, the face would have been straight up, it would have been at the equator, where it would have been seen by the mother planet. And, and do we know for sure uh, that the polar shift would have been exactly that, Doctor, uh, to, to, to uh, shift the face just that way? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, that's a result by a Martian geologist, uh, Peter Schultz. Uh, he, had, he wasn't thinking of anything to do with Cydonia or anything to do with exploding planets. It was just based on a study of Martian surface features. He detected uh, an old location of the geographic pole in, uh, in the geological past. He wasn't able to tell how long ago uh, this had happened, but that there was a sudden shift in the location of the geographic pole, one of the many mysteries uh, about Mars to the, to the regular planetary geologists uh, that is cleared up greatly when we uh, view Martian history in the light of the exploded planet hypothesis. Uh-huh. Um, 
with that evidence uh, independently gathered and the new photographic evidence uh, or enhanced photographic evidence showing that uh, this face has not one eye but two, has one on the other side, and so forth and so on, then when you begin to calculate the odds that this face um, is not natural, what do you come up with? Uh, well, the, the combined odds of all these tests uh, being passed are rather overwhelming. Uh, four of the tests, uh, four of the eight tests I mentioned, stand on their own two feet as statistically significant all by themselves without the help of their of the others. So even just the, uh, the location and orientation tests uh, alone by themselves have enough statistical significance to say we ought to be paying attention to uh, the likelihood that uh, an object uh, as interesting as the face was built right on the equator or appears right on the equator, that's unlikely to happen by chance. But when you look at something like bilateral symmetry, the chances of that uh, happening, uh, remember the shadowed side resembling a mere human face. Yes. Uh, by rights, we should be looking at desert sand or rubble um, and not a symmetric human face. Um, the, the odds against that are uh, almost incalculably large. Um, 50 million to one? <laughs> <laughs> well taken. Perhaps so. <laughs> so uh, you have been sort of issuing warnings to people, get ready, uh, because if they do some good um, um, high-resolution uh, imaging of the Sedoni region, there's going to be a big, big shock for the world. And part of the shock, of course, is going to be, as you explained uh, right at the end of the last hour, that if Mars was a, the moon of the larger planet, and whoever lived on that planet built this face to be seen from that planet, as it reasonably seems they would, and the face is humanoid, then there is every chance that whoever lived on that planet, as recently as three million years ago, was looking for a new home. And, of course, we would be the third rock from the sun. Uh, close by uh, would be their best opportunity. Uh, we already know they would have to be space-faring people, or they could not have built the face so they could travel in space. Um, would they have had... Now, I understand we're getting into the area of conjecture, but would they have had warning of what was going to occur to their planet, uh, Doctor, enough warning that they could have in effect, seeded Earth with life, us? Uh, yes, there would have been plenty of time to prepare for this, and if they had uh, the capability of space travel, the most reasonable thing uh, a civilization would do when faced with such a catastrophe would be to try to mount uh, an expedition. Uh, in fact, I, I've remarked uh, a couple of times on the, the uh, perhaps coincidence um, of what the logical course of action would have been for such a civilization uh, and uh, some of the most ancient writings preserved on this planet. In other words, you're on a planet that's going to blow up. You know it's coming. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? You're going to try to to uh, get a, a craft together that will carry as many uh, uh, in, in inhabitants uh, as you possibly can save uh, to the distant planet. You're going to try to take uh, two of every kind of species. Uh, space, you, uh, space arc. 
Uh, yeah, you, you possibly can. Uh, plan an animal uh, to preserve as much of, of what you have as possible, uh, and you're going to set off uh, on a voyage uh, of indefinite duration uh, across the cosmos uh, and and try to to, uh, to start again uh, in this new world. Well, it wouldn't have been an unreasonable voyage. I believe it's thought that we can go to Mars in, what, about 18 months? Uh, that's right. With our technology. Now, so uh, assuming that they were fairly sophisticated uh, spacefarers and they must have been to build that face, uh, they could have conceivably and reasonably made that trip to Earth. Yes, that's right. Uh, that would not be an unreasonable trip at all for them to make. Uh, once they get here, um, chances are they're not going to be adapted to our atmosphere. They would probably not find it immediately breathable without spacesuits. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about, uh, in this conjectural scenario, we're talking about civilization that had long since reached the point of space travel. So it's not an unreasonable additional conjecture that they knew a little bit of more about DNA than we know now, and we are already finding out some amazing things about DNA. Oh, yes, we are. Uh, the way they would have dealt with the circumstance that they couldn't breathe our air directly is chances are they would uh, merge their DNA with the most viable native species already here on the planet, the primates. Uh, to produce offspring that had their genetic characteristics, but which was adapted to breathing this air and eating the food and resources on this planet. Doctor, have uh, the evolutionists yet conclusively proven their point? They have not, have they? There is a missing link, isn't there? Uh, that's what I understand. Uh, by uh, ev Evolutionary biology is not my own field, but uh, I, I do follow what I read in the journals, and that seems to be the case. They just can't quite figure it out. Um, as a matter of fact, there was a really interesting recent story about, I think it was Cro-Magnon, I'm not sure, man, uh, not being particularly closely related to present humans uh, from a DNA perspective. Uh, yes, that's right. Now, so it is reasonable then to conclude that somebody might have come along with that kind of technology and made a DNA change to enable them to live uh, to live and breathe, as it were, on, on a planet uh, like ours. Uh, yes, this is still conjectural, but it, it all would seem to follow uh, reasonably given the circumstances that we imagine must have happened if there were uh, intelligent beings on this planet prior to the explosion. Um... How is this going to, uh, you're familiar with the Brookings report, of course. Yes. If we get these images and we find out that this is not a natural thing on Mars, then everybody is going to quickly rush to you and to embrace your, uh, your theory. And, um, it is going to, how do you see that affecting the civilization, um, our social structures, Science, religion, uh, what, how, how do you see if one day suddenly the announcement is made, how do you see that affecting us? Well, it, it's, uh, it's a very individual thing because it's a change of perspective on who we are uh, as a species, as a people of the universe. Do you necessarily see a conflict with let there be light? Well, uh, that's an interesting uh, question. Um, uh, 
uh, some people, when we talk about discovering artifacts on Mars uh, that must have been built, feel a little bit of implied threat there because that to, to them it means there must be them. There must be aliens out there with advanced capabilities, and since we don't know anything about them, uh, could they be hostile? Other people look at the same evidence and say, gee, maybe that's, maybe them uh, is us. Maybe that's our own history. And maybe some of these stories uh, in the ancient preserved writings are actually um, uh, remembrances uh, of of the history of our species and the stories of the Garden of Paradise and uh, the Noah's Ark and so on that have come down to us uh, through the Western Bible. But it's the same kind of stories are in the sacred writings of all the cultures. I caught the parallel when you talked about the two of each. Uh, yes. Uh, perhaps these... Uh, these are uh, stories of our own history and that what we're getting is just a slightly different spin on them than we've had up to now, but that, in a sense, science is discovering the same kinds of things that uh, religious people have believed for a long time. So you could see this as a threat or you could see it as a confirmation, according to your personal bent. I believe the Brookings report suggested one of the greatest impacts would be on... Uh, science would be on scientists. Um, as you as you look around at your colleagues, should this uh, prove out to be the case, and that day comes, uh, what would you think? Uh, how would you think they would take it? Well, that's uh, also a very interesting topic. I have had some lengthy discussions with some of my colleagues, uh, just uh, about the the more modest. Um, uh, possibility that the exploded planet hypothesis all by itself uh, might be a co the correct model for the history of the solar system rather than uh, the solar nebula hypothesis that is currently in favor. Uh, there's an awful lot of evidence for the exploded planet hypothesis, and I summarized that some uh, that in my uh, my book, Dark Matter. Um, the uh, my, I talked to my colleagues about it, and very often the experts in this field. Um, feel a little bit personally uh, challenged and threatened by such a drastic change yes. uh, of perspective from what they have uh, thought and and uh, developed their theories and written books and papers on uh, for so many years now. That would be the exploding careers hypothesis. <laughs> yes, there's a bit of that. I, <laughs> I I had one common expert say, well, if that turned out to be true, uh, he'd dig ditches for a living. Well, that's what I mean. So you've been sort of issuing these these, these warnings, um, and they've been circulating all over the place. And I think that they're well-founded warnings. Now, that brings us to Dr. Malin and the uh, present mission. Um, in the interview done uh, by Linda Moulton Howe with Dr. Malin, I, I felt as though he was dancing all over the place. I, I would really love to talk to the man myself. I understand that um, the aerobraking uh, has gone through some change of plans and so forth and so on, but he seemed to really go out of his way to suggest that, look, there's a significant possibility we'll never get pictures of the Sidonia region. Uh, Richard Hoagland was disturbed uh, because the camera was turned off. I believe the camera is off now. Is that correct? Yes, it is. It is. Um, and he suggested we'll be missing a very good opportunity to get um, some pictures of Cydonia. 
Uh, Dr. Malin did not at all seem convinced. He said, I certainly am going to try. But he didn't seem convinced at all that he would get pictures of Sidonia. So, I guess my question is, if you embrace Brookings, and I do, I think it's, it's correct. It would be a great disruption of the force, Doctor. Even if he did get a photograph. Now, he says, of course, you know, I'd be the most famous man around and uh, I'd get a Nobel and all the rest of it if I were to prove this. I am not convinced that that information would be released. Are you? Well, uh, it's, it's a question uh, worthy of being asked. Um, but... In the that decision uh, and the information itself will be in the hands of Mike Malin, uh, not anybody else at NASA. And Mike Malin is not a NASA employee. He's a private contractor. Mm -hmm. uh, but he has been charged as the principal investigator of this mission. Uh, he, deter he built the camera that is on the spacecraft. He determines uh, its usage. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, deter he, he gets the images uh, as they come in. Uh, sets the priorities uh, for the targeting uh, mm -hmm. and does a quick look on the images and decides what's going to be released uh, and when. Are you happy with that? Um, I would be a lot happier uh, if Mike Millen in particular uh, approached uh, this matter with the same kind of uh, objectivity that I uh, recommended earlier when I talked about the 100 to 1 bet. Uh, but he has made some public statements, uh, the, the uh, most recent of which uh, disturbs me greatly. Uh, he, he is quoted on his website as saying that, uh, well, what if we get pictures of the face and it still looks like a face? Mm-hmm. That seems to be um, a sort of a setup for uh, the fact that he may believe that now there is, in fact, a face there. Or one might even uh, jump another notch and say, maybe he's already seen the pictures. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I it's possible. Of course, one, one's imagination can run wild. But uh, well, such a statement invites that sort of speculation, doesn't it? Well, it made me think that he doesn't take seriously the possibility that the, uh, the structure could be uh, built. Uh, he seems to be saying. Uh, it's, uh, it looks like a face by chance now, and it might still look like a face by chance uh, when we get better pictures. Do you think that the recent, uh, very interesting work done on, on showing the uh, symmetrical features of the face, where not one eye, but two and so forth and so on, do you think that might have caused him to make that statement? Uh, well, it's difficult to read someone else's mind, but uh, I... Uh, and, and, and uh, Mike Millen is in a difficult situation, too. He can't promise us pictures because there are so many things that can go wrong with this experiment. Uh, oh, yes. Instrument failure, Martian dust oh, storm, yes. and so on. Yes, yes. And even, uh, even if all goes well, um, the mapping mission is still at the mercy of uh, whatever happens to go pass under the, the lens of the camera. Uh, so he's in no position to guarantee what we'll get and therefore doesn't want to make promises and create unrealistic expectations. Are you completely comfortable that if he does get a good image of Sidonia, he will release it? 
Uh, I'll, let, I'll let you think about that during the break. Uh, that's not an easy question. <laughs> Professor Tom Van Flanderen is my guest. This is Coast to Coast AM. The Talk Station, AM 1500 KSTP. Kingdom of Nye, from east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033, 1-800-825-5033, west of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-8255. Now again, here's Art Bell. Once again, here I am, Dr. Uh, Tom Van Flandren, who, by the way, in case you hadn't heard, received his Ph.D. degree in astronomy from Yale University in 1969 is my guest. Spent 20 years at the U.S. Naval Observatory where he became chief of celestial mechanics. The branch dealing with celestial mechanics. And he'll be back in a moment. 95. And if you already own a Stappy, call play for upgrade details at 1-888-888-PLAY. P-L-A-Y. See Snappy for yourself and discover the company behind this amazing technology. They're on the web now at www.play.com. That's P-L-A-Y dot com. All right, now back to Professor Van Flandren. Uh, doctor, the question was a tough one, I know. Um, and Mike Malin, of course, Dr. Malin, is going to have and does have, as we both know, control over these photographs for a period of time. Now, if he were to suddenly get one definitively showing that, voila, this certainly is not natural, I would think that um, he would go through a certain thinking process uh, uh, before he were to release the photograph, and part of that process would probably include talking to uh, the people at NASA, talking to the people in our government, and uh, then, uh, how do you calculate the odds of the photograph being released? Well, uh, yeah, these are all interesting issues that you raise. Um, I would certainly feel a lot better about it if uh, Mike Malin uh, expressed his scientific objectivity on the matter and uh, reassured us that he was not going to be influenced by peer pressure or or uh, personal beliefs, uh, but uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, yes, he would probably have to go to NASA with the, the pictures. He would certainly uh, not take it upon himself to either release them or to suppress them with, without consulting with uh, with other officials. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'd say with something uh, of this importance, uh, the decision would ultimately go to the president. Mm -hmm. Um I uh, I imagine that this 
decision would ultimately be to release the information. Uh, after all, it's uh, it's knowledge, um, it's knowledge which is part of NASA's mission and in the public domain. Mm -hmm. This is not part of any classified or military or secret program. It's it is for the benefit of mankind. Let me tell you a little story, personal story. I'm now on the air at 400 radio stations. I don't know, millions, 15 million people, maybe. Um, anything I say gets magnified a million times. Any little sentence, any little utterance, doesn't matter. I, I play on the edge with my radio program, and I'm liable to have anybody on. If I have somebody on who claims to be, for example, a witch, um, or somebody who, uh, will come on and explain they practice the darker crafts, or that they don't believe uh, precisely in the God of the Bible as described in the Bible. I assure you, Doctor, 20% of the mail and responses that I get, which number in the thousands over any given show of that sort, um, will uh, uh, feel that I am the devil incarnate, that I ought to be burned at the stake, that I shouldn't be allowed to um, uh, delve into or even uh, allow to be broadcasted this kind of material. I will get threats. Um, I just can't begin to tell you. A good 20%, uh, doctor, uh, really go off the deep end uh, in response to any sort of broadcast of that sort. Now, I think that translates pretty well into the general population. Uh-huh. And I think that it validates the Brookings concerns. That's just my observation from my input. Well, uh, does this uh, does this argue that we should suppress the knowledge? Uh, it might. Uh, it might. It might. The American Revolution was accomplished with a much smaller percentage. Well, let's ask some of those people out there if they would rather not know at all than learn something that is contrary to their present belief. I can absolutely promise you the, uh, the, the, the by and large, the reaction on the phone is going to be if we start taking calls, oh, yes, I want to know. I want to know. But uh, there'll be a good 20% hanging out there uh, saying this stuff is of the devil. Of the devil, doctor. And I'm just saying that... Um, those are pretty serious concerns. Um, I, I think that what you have laid out is perfectly credible, quite probable, and very dangerous. <laughs> very dangerous. Um, so I think we've got that out. Um, there is one other thing I want to cover with you. Well, actually, several. Um, one is the Big Bang. I just finished reading a wonderful book by Richard Preston, who's kind of a friend now, called First Light. It's a kind of a love letter to Palomar Observatory about the history of Palomar and all the rest of it. And uh, there's an awful lot of astronomy in it. It's a really wonderful book. But in one chapter, they cover the Big Bang. And I'm trying to come to terms with this Big Bang. And I'm trying to understand it. In here, I could read it to you, and I don't think I'll elaborate, but basically what it suggests is that at one point there was nothing. There was uh, something the size smaller than a cork, if that can even be imagined, and that everything we now see, everything that may go out to 15 billion years of look-back time, came from an explosion 
of this one little tiny thing smaller than a quirk. And I just can't buy it. It is the Big Bang Theory, and I know you don't buy it either. What's wrong with the Big Bang Theory? Uh, well, it's even stranger than what you've described, and that's already strange enough. Well, they can't. When it gets small, too small, then they can't explain it. They, they, you know, they stop. They say, well, we don't know. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but also, it's not just an explosion of, of uh, matter in this pre-existing space. It's an explosion of space itself and of time. Uh, if you could imagine such things, and I can't, uh, frankly. Um, but this is uh, this is supposed to be the beginning of space itself. The beginning of space itself. Then one, of course, must ask, well, what was there before the space? <laughs> uh, conceptually, according to this theory, nothing. It's not an explosion into space. It's an explosion of space. But nothing is still empty space. Uh... Yes. Uh, these are good philosophical questions. I, I think that the theory just does not uh, stand up to, to sound logical underpinnings of its philosophy. But a more uh, we can debate philosophy forever. More relevant is, does it stand up to observational tests uh, of, its, uh, of its own predictions? Well, uh, as evidence, of course, they will cite the fact that uh, everything seems to be flying apart. And they will um, cite as evidence of that the increasing redshift, um, as though it all came from uh, one place um, originally. Yes, that is one of the uh, underpinnings. One of the underpinnings of the Big Bang theory that, uh, as we look at galaxies uh, surrounding our own galaxy uh, in the distant universe, the uh, fainter and therefore presumably further away a galaxy is, the more its light is redshifted. Right. And the normal, the normal thing that would cause light to be redshifted would be movement away from us. Yes. However, that's not the only thing that can cause light to redshift. Uh, anything that causes that light to lose energy as it travels would also cause it to redshift. Uh-uh. And there are ways to test whether the uh, light of galaxies is redshifted due to motion away from us or whether it's due to energy loss. And those tests are published uh, in the Astrophysical Journal, and they show that it appears to be more likely that the redshift is due to energy loss than due to motion away from us. So it may be that even that most fundamental underpinning of the Big Bang Theory, the idea that the universe is expanding, it has not yet been proven observationally, and the newest observational evidence suggests the contrary. Well, if we didn't all spring from the Big Bang, and if we're not all flying apart from each other, then what would you rather imagine occurred, that we have always been here? When I say we, I refer to the planets and suns, and I realize that it's an ever-changing process, but... Uh, is is that what you believe uh, versus the, the little tiny miniature quark exploding into everything? Well, I, I puzzled over uh, such matters myself uh, for most of my life, and I found that uh, trying to, to guess uh, the, the origin of the universe and uh, the nature of things uh, uh, led to theory after theory after theory, which were easily shot down. It, it seems to me it's an insurmountable... Uh, task asking us to to guess by induction uh, what the origin of things was. Um, in frustration, uh, 
um, I uh, I tried a completely different approach, one that's ne- never been tried before uh, in coming up with a theory of cosmology or any of the other types of theories uh, that we've talked about. And this is what my book is about, using deductive reasoning instead of inductive in, or- in order to get answers to such questions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, in my book, I say, let's imagine that we have nothing, not just vacuum, not just empty space, but nothing. And then into this uh, total void, let's introduce one unit of something not otherwise described. <laughs> All right. We discuss its properties. It turns out that there's something, uh, what would it mean uh, if we said it was moving? It isn't moving with respect to anything, so there wouldn't be any way to tell if it was moving or not moving. No reference. No reference. Uh, in, in this way, we discuss what properties are possible and, and in a uh, universe with only one uh, unit of something in it, uh, it, it there, there are no properties. Mm-hmm. But right. when we put in two units of something uh, and start to build a real universe, uh, th- then properties begin to appear. And instead of imposing those properties on the universe, we let them come naturally out of the process as we conceptually build a universe. Hmm. And the amazing thing is that when we get well downstream, we eventually arrive at properties that resemble the force of gravity, uh, forces in general uh, of nature. Uh, we, we arrive at uh, a natural mechanism that would ex- explain why light would, uh, would redshift as it traveled and lots of other uh, uh, things that resemble the real universe even better than our conventional models do. And this is all described in my book, Dark Matter, Missing Planets, and New Comets. And by the way, they, where can people get that book? Uh, well, uh, linking to your website will allow them to link to mine uh, where there are instructions or uh, what can order from the publisher, North Atlantic Books, or through the major bookstores, uh, such as, uh, well, I, I shouldn't probably yeah, It doesn't matter. B. Dalton is one that I can think yeah, of. Yeah, Barnes & Noble is another in, in other words, nationwide. Yes. And it's called Dark Matter, uh, Missing Planets, and New Comets, huh? That's right. So... I'm still not sure that I understand. You said, imagine nothing. I'll try. It's hard, but I imagine nothing. Nothing. And then something, a unit of something. And then, then what? Uh, well, from Ka- the... Kaboom? <laughs> no, no boom. No boom. Uh, we just uh, start with one unit of substance and develop all the pos- properties we possibly can... Right. which with one unit of substance mainly means we're impressed with the absence of properties. Okay. When we have a second unit of substance, conceptually, we just introduce it with our mind into this universe. Yes. There is, there is now uh, a difference that occurs because while there are two units of substance and they're apart, they can't even know about each other's existence. But if they came into contact, they could. So there are two distinguishable conditions, apart and together. And so now suddenly we have uh, the possibility of change in this universe, a distinguishable change that could occur conceptually. But if the uh, if two units of substance are apart and then together uh, and apart again and together again, you can't tell uh, if the uh, interval between contacts is uh, a microsecond or, or a billion years or yes. uh, infinity, basically. Uh, there's no, no 
no way to, uh, there's no scale against which to refer, just as there wasn't any scale for distance. You can't tell if these things are large or small. So you really, even though it's a different theory, you still have the same problem with origins that those who embrace the Big well, Bang do. Well, at this beginning point, uh, these things are undefined, but as we build and build, we gradually see these properties do emerge from the model, and the model that comes out tells us by... Uh, deductive reasoning that the universe uh, at large, at least in this model, which agrees very well with all the observations, must be infinite. But not just infinite in space, infinite in time and infinite in scale as well, meaning that it's infinitely composed of smaller and smaller things all the way down, and there are infinite structures on ever larger scales all the way up. Did dark matter uh, contribute to the the somethings that we're asked to imagine? Uh, the answer to that is no. No, because uh, there was nothing. Right. And the reason why dark matter is a popular theory in astronomy today is because there seems to be a failure of the law of gravitation for large-scale structures in the universe. <laughs> I know, yes. It looks as though the law of gravity doesn't work right, so we invent dark matter to make everything work right. But in this model, there is a natural reason why the law of gravity should fail for large scales, and it fails in just the way that the model predicts. And so there shouldn't, we don't need to invent dark matter anymore. What we see is what there is. Do you uh, believe that there are multiple dimensions? Um, well, uh, it, these things uh, ought to be a matter of belief. We can formulate hypotheses and test them in science. Uh, do, you, do you think the hypothesis of multiple dimensions is a sound hypothesis? Uh, you would have to define your terms in order for me to answer that, but I would say that we have evidence for five dimensions and no evidence for dimensions beyond that, uh, as nearly as, uh, as I can evaluate the tests that have been done. Are you familiar with Dr. Kaku? Uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm not. Dr. Michio Kaku, he is a theoretical physicist at New York City University. And uh, he believes that there are um, uh, ten universes. Um, he also believes that there are many civilizations, uh, which he classes for the for convenience in into um, uh, the category into different categories: uh, type zero, type one, type two, and type three. Type zero is, of course, us. Uh, type one would, uh, for example, be able to learn to utilize the uh, uh, the power of a planet, um, not as we do now, but. Um, uh, more directly, uh, would uh, get to zero-point energy, that sort of thing. Uh, type 2 would utilize the power of a star, a star, that sort of thing. And that the chances of any Type 0 ever becoming a Type 1 uh, are slim indeed, and that many, many Type 0s arise um, and, of course, uh, uh, meet their demise, either bringing it on themselves or through some other a catastrophic occurrence, uh, but very rarely does a type 0 uh, make it to a type 1. And I don't know that I'm doing justice to what he said, but that's roughly it. How, how does that sound to you? Uh, likely, unlikely? I mean, do you, do you consider life to be very likely? Um, 
with so many stars and planets, or rather unlikely? Well, given uh, an infinite universe with infinite time to evolve things, uh, I, 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 shall we say that uh, the, the model uh, that I think uh, matches reality best certainly doesn't have any problem with there being enough time for evolution to occur. And uh, to my way of thinking, probably life is evolving at all scales, not just the ones that we can see, because there wouldn't be anything special about our scale. In other words, if we imagine in our mind that uh, that a, uh, a neutron, an atomic uh, ingredient of atoms, um, might be something like a planet, uh, there would be uh, one would expect that life would also evolve at that scale, too. Indeed. Although... Doctor, hold on. We'll be right back. This is Coast to Coast AM. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind. He was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player, too. And if you care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now, you play a pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, My name's John. It's time. To talk with Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye from outside the U.S., first... Dial your access number to the USA. Then, 800-893-0903. If you're a first-time caller, call Art at 702-727-1222. From east of the Rockies, 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. Call Art at 1-800-618-8255. Or call Art on the wild card line at area code 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye. It is, and we are about to go to the phones with Dr. Van Flandre. So if you have a question, it'll be a good time to come, and I can see you're already here. Everything's lit. So we'll get to uh, your questions in a moment. The Beijing Free Play Radio... Um, is on sale, and guess what, folks? Uh, listen very closely. Attention, please. This is the last day for the spring sale of the spring-powered radios. The last day for everything. Last night, last day. This is it. <laughs> the Beijing is a seven-pound uh, radio, AM, FM, shortwave, seven shortwave bands. It doesn't require being uh, plugged into the wall, nor does it use batteries because it has the Bayless Clockwork Generator, a remarkable device. You turn it for 30 seconds, the radio plays for 30 minutes at full room volume on AM, FM, or shortwave. Normally, it's $119.95. It's on sale today only, last day, $109.95. Word to the wise. Then there is the second Beijing. It is the one I think you ought to have, the one I personally prefer. 
They're both great. I mean, it's a great radio. But this second one has a modification installed by the Sea Crane Company, so you can only get it from them. It's got a little jack on the back. You plug in a mag light into it. They supply the mag light. It's got an LED light-emitting diode light in it, actually three of them. And <laughs> now you plug this in, you wind up the radio. Uh, Why well, I say wind it up? Wind the, turn the crank for 30 seconds. And now the radio will play for 30 minutes, and the light will light for 30 minutes. Enough light to light a room, to read by, certainly to get by in an emergency. And, and listen, the light, the LED, will last 100,000 hours. Normally it's 149.95, today only, today only. Are you listening? 139.95. Tomorrow it goes back up to the regular price. Limited quantity. Uh, however, uh, Bob does say he'll give rain checks. Even when they run out today, which they probably will, they'll give rain checks to you. So this is your one opportunity. Don't blow it. The number to call in the morning at 7.30 Pacific time is 1-800-522-8863. Repeating, 7.30 Pacific, 10.30 Eastern, one 800-522-8863. All right, well, uh, the good doctor is in Washington, D.C. as our nation's capital. That's three hours away. That means he's up really late. Uh, doctor? Yes. Um, are you willing to answer some questions from the audience? Uh, okay. <laughs> let's give it a try. Uh, yeah, let's give it a try. I'll do my best to just remain coherent. All right. Uh, first time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Van Flandren. Where are you, please? Hi. I'm Rob from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, I would first like to uh, make a comment and then um, ask that uh, make a recommendation for a guest on your show. Uh, do you have a question for my guest? Yes. All right. Um. Yes. I guess, uh, since, uh, if my understanding of the Big Bang Theory is correct, that um, there was an explosion, and I guess to imply that there's an explosion, there has to be, like, space for something to explode in. Um, I guess what, but his, I guess according to his theories, it's, uh, uh, excuse me, I guess my question is, what was before the explosion? Well, that is the $64 gazillion question. Um, we don't know, and that it, it begins to get philosophical at that point because there's no science to explain it, really. Um, so I guess we're going to have to leave you with that. I've, I, that's what I got, too. There's really no science to explain the instant of creation or what was there prior to it. Is okay. that right, Doctor? Yes, that is correct. Uh, the explosion was an explosion of space, uh, uh, but not into some pre-existing space, uh, into nothingness, replacing mm -hmm. nothingness. And uh, there are theories uh, that these explosions uh, occur cyclically, uh, expand and collapse over and over again, uh, and other theories are that this is a one-time event. Uh, but this is all just philosophy. That is, you can... Here, here's another one for you. Is it not true that um, not everything is red-shifted? Some things are blue-shifted. Is that correct? Uh, well, yes, there are blue-shifted things, uh, in, in, for example, among stars in our, our own galaxy. But 
uh, of all the galaxies we see in the universe around us, uh, all but one or two of the very closest neighbors are redshifted. Okay. Uh, so that, that would imply that uh, if you buy redshift says things are getting farther away, that would imply that everything is flying away. Yes, that's right. Another interesting thing, of course, is that um, uh, when you look at our placement, when you look at Earth in the larger scheme of things, we are really in the, the outback, aren't we? We're not very close to the center of real action. Uh, we're not close to the center of our own galaxy. Uh, our galaxy is named the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. And we're uh, sitting out sort of, a, uh, not exactly uh, on the edge, but uh, well out of the uh, the center neighborhood, uh, uh, about 30,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy. And so if the center were New York, we're somewhere in Connecticut. Um, yes, uh and perhaps even uh, further out than that. <laughs> Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Yes. <laughs> Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Dr. Van Flanderen. Hello. Yes, Ethan. And you guys just... Well, actually, I want to mention about a couple things, and that's about the universe, the infinite, basically, it's creating the electromagnetic radiation that's called gravity. Uh created by every other object except for the object or objects that you're speaking of with a gravitational force and also that the redshift would be created basically by its own electromagnetic radiation pulling it down further away from you know its point of origin as the observer would be be more redshifted or slowed down further it goes. Plus also is about the uh asteroid belt, basically, if you think of it as being a larger object collided with another object and create a nuclear fusion instantaneously would create that gaseous planet like Jupiter's and Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, well, Neptune, and the outside and the inside planets basically would absorb the gas when it detonated and it would be pulled into the sun and create the asteroid belt, Neptune traveling at a different orbit as the rest of the other planets, too. Was wondering about those. What do you thought about that? Well, uh, th those are all interesting ideas. Um, you, you seem to um, have a, uh, a a talent for for theorizing, and wh what you need to do with uh, various any ideas that you come up with is uh, work out all their logical consequences, and then propose ways to test them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the the, uh, the success or failure of the tests are what uh, that plus uh, how how well they uh, fare at interpreting all the existing experiments and data are what determine uh, wh whether we accept hypotheses on the scientific table or we don't. And Doctor, I believe looking out uh, way out as they're now able to do with Hubble uh, or with the larger telescopes on Earth, they they look for. Um, Pulsars, for example, don't they, uh, because they are so uh, very bright, and then measure the redshift of the, the, the pulsars uh, in order to see how far back they're looking. Is that roughly correct? Uh, perhaps you might be thinking of quasars. Quasars, I'm sorry. I always, get I always do that. Uh, quasars, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, in the Big Bang Theory, quasars are the active cores of primitive galaxies. Uh, that's just a theory. Uh, but, yes, uh, when you're looking at quasars, then you're looking at the most distant uh, objects that we can see. Okay. Uh, how far back we look? 
Uh, let's see, the the look back time is now uh, back to approximately uh, 800 million years after the Big Bang. That is, according to the Big Bang theory. 800 million, wait a minute, 800 million years after the Big Bang? Yes, that's right. Well, no, wait a minute, the Big Bang occurred 15 billion years ago, I think. Right. Uh, right? Yes, so you're saying 15 billion, 800 million years uh, is our present look-back time. How can that be? In uh, other words, I, I can understand that at 15 billion years, it's something. Quasar, uh, maybe, or something that you could you could mark and say, okay, redshift, aha, uh -huh, 15 billion years. But after that, there should be nothing. Nothing that you could see. How, well, could, how could there be if all matter... Yeah, I'm confused. Yeah, the, the answer again goes back to the uh, the nature of the theory, uh, the, the the Big Bang. This is not my idea. Now I'm explaining the conventional Big Bang theory as this is astronomy. I understand. It's not an explosion of matter into space. Well, it sounds like an explosion of the Big Bang theory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in, right. in a real sense, I uh, I like that analogy. But uh, they're t they're talking about an explosion of space itself, and therefore. Um, uh, when you when you had the release of that the, this microwave background yes. that spreads all through space, so everybody sees that constantly in all directions, ever thereafter. Uh, and when we're looking back, uh, as far as we can see, uh, the further out we go, the closer we get to being able to say 800 million years after the Big Bang. I'm talking about if the Big Bang was 15 billion years ago, then we're, we can look back. 14 billion, 200 million years. Okay. What do you think, uh, once you get out to 15 billion years, uh, what do you think would be beyond that? Well, uh, in the Big Bang theory, um, the higher the redshift, the closer you're getting to the Big Bang. Yep. Uh, uh, but in other theories, the higher the redshift, the more distant uh, uh, you are looking in the universe, yes. in a possibly infinite universe. So, how far away you're looking depends upon which theory you're using. Uh, we, we can't tell absolute distance. We can only use a theory. Okay, but you would think there would be then infinity as one possibility, mm -hmm. and another would be that if you could uh, look back far and be again looking at yourself. In other words, that it's one large circle. Yes, that's right. Uh, well, the Big Bang Theory makes certain specific predictions, and according to the Big Bang, as we look back uh, to these most distant objects, they should be very, very primitive, very, just newly formed galaxies with young stars in them. Yes. And so far, that's not panning out with the observational evidence. Uh, on my website, which could be linked to from yours, a summary of the top ten problems with the Big Bang Theory, and that's one of them. Uh, there, there are problems with the uh, the look back that things don't look younger uh, necessarily as we try. All right. Um, so, folks, you should go to my website immediately. I really mean this. And uh, scroll on down to the guest names. You will see uh, Dr. Van Flandren's name there. Click on that. You'll go right over to his website, um, which is fascinating. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Van Flandren. Hello? Where are you, please? Hello? Hello. Hello. Finished from Xavier University in Cincinnati. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. How uh, are you? I, I just I thought I heard this business about the great stone face or old man of the mountain in New Hampshire. I think it's just a rock formation, but it's at the right angle. That's just a side remark I make that people might be able to test various criteria, whether it's not just interestingly, 
if you want to get evolution going any way you can, however you get it going, however you get it going, then, of course, it can go ahead and do things if you have the time that are utterly uh, fantastic because it can uh, develop and develop. Now, so some of our graduate students, oh, about three decades ago, about cosmic engineering, the idea that you take the matter around a star, instead of having it concentrate in small planets, spread it out so that you use and capture and use the uh, energy coming from that star for a much larger area rather than letting all of them, most of it, all of it go by by uh, missing this small surface of little globes. And he went so far as to suggest that if you had it spread out into a large spheres so you captured most of it, then evidence that there's such were going on would be you'd have a dim uh, heat coming off from the outside of that because the energy would be used along the way instead of allowing most of it to fly on by. Now, if evolution works, and it uh, works anywhere, then you wanted to send it by, say, electromagnetic radiation, by, say, uh, Walsh waves, which are not subject to the uh, Doppler shifting uh, effects, as Professor John Hart pointed out quite some time ago, and you would then want to communicate the choice of one and four, choice of one and four, choice of one and four uh, business, and you know place how to make some, how to put it together, you give an operational definition of the uh, molecules uh, by transmitting uh, through uh, Walsh waves, uh, which be invulnerable to the Doppler shift. Excuse me, Doctor. Um, uh, uh, Tom, can you translate that for us? <laughs> A little bit too much too fast. Well, all right. The idea of cosmic engineering, that those who cosmic engineer not want let the power, the energy being released by a star lose it, so you'd want to spread the matter out, which was eventually available to you, maybe in the form of high-area uh, uh, energy absorbers and users, rather than let it go by. Now, uh, the evidence that uh, Professor Peterson uh, the glow, the dim glow of the uh, large sphere of uh, these energy used versions, the cosmic engineered ones, rather than just having the matter concentrated so tiny and losing most of it, and so you might be able to see evidence that such is going on. I say if there is such going on and evolution is going there and you want to send the specs, so to speak, of how to do them, uh, you would send it the specs by giving operational definitions how to make things through a choice of one and four, choice of one and four, choice of one and four triplets, say, doctor, doctor, uh, ways Yes, doctor, excuse me, doctor. You, you, doctor, by the doctor, excuse me. You said it again, and I still don't understand it. Um, and, and I'm sure that's my fault, not... Are you getting this? Well, uh, I, uh, what you're talking about, it seems to be what's popularly called Dyson spheres, uh, which basically are uh, uh, ways to capture the energy emitted by a star uh, by building a structure all around it and, and getting all the energy in that we might be able to detect such things if there were other civilizations by looking for infrared radiation leaking out of such things. In other words, uh, if, I, if I've got this straight and boil all that down, he's saying a civilization that would have learned to harness the power of a star. Is that? Yes, that's right. That is right. That, then, um, is roughly um, uh, Dr. Kaku's um, a description of a, a civilization that would be a, a civilization to uh, harness the, uh, the power of a star. Uh, doctor, have we seen any such evidence? Uh, well, and I think the short answer is no. Nothing that we would credit 
as being likely to be uh, Dyson spheres. So these things, uh, if they exist, either don't leak much or uh, they're, they're not uh, very abundant in the uh, galaxy around us. Mm-hmm. So uh, no evidence of that all of that at all yet. Uh, that's right. Okay. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Van Flandren. Hello. Yeah, hello. This is uh, Darren in Carson City. Yes, sir. Listening to you on your oldest affiliate, KOH. You bet. Um, thank you for having us. So, but uh, I have a question and an idea I'd like uh, the doctor's uh, uh, ideas on. Um, All right. Uh, is your question a quick one? Yeah, the question's quick. So quick I could throw it at the end, and, and so is the idea. All right, well, give us the question first, very okay, quick. The question is, um, I didn't catch in the very beginning of the show, but this, the uh, parent planet um, theory to Mars, do we know how big it would have been? Ah, all right, uh, and on that note, we will break here at the half-hour point. Caller, hold on. It is a good question. If Mars was the moon of a much larger planet, how big was that planet? How much gravity would there have been, and what type of beings would have evolved? I'm Art Bell. This is Coast to Coast AM. The Talk Station, AM 1500 KSTP. Kingdom of Nye. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Please call 1-800-825-5033. West of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, First-time callers may reach Art at area code 702-727-1222. And you may fax Art at area code 702-727-8499. Please limit your faxes to one or two pages. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. My guess. Now again, here's Art. Now again, here's Professor Van Flandren coming up in a moment. Oh, boy. Inter- inter- interrupting my own announcer. Great, huh? I just got a letter um, uh, from a uh, Mr. Anderson in Hackettstown, New Jersey. <laughs> and I guess I've got to ask the rest of you for a confirmation of this. Your show on WABC in New York, 7.70 a.m. And thought following might interest you. This past weekend, I saw a trailer for a soon-to-be-released movie called Mercury Rising, starring Bruce Willis. I advise his character as, quote, Special Agent Art Bell. Unquote. On memory for a while, then I finally put two and two together. Rather interesting, wouldn't you say? <laughs> oh, no. Does anybody else out there uh, have any uh, confirmation of that? <laughs> it's not really true. <sighs> First Mars attacks, and now this. Of course, it's your initial investment. Only risk capital should be used. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. All right, once again, Dr. Verlade, if Mars was the moon of a planet, uh, would you guess that planet would would be? Yes, it's very difficult to to estimate, but best guess would be... uh, As big as the Earth. And Mars is smaller than the Earth, correct? Yes, it's one-tenth of the mass of the Earth. 
All right, so there would have been, then, by definition, a lot of gravity on that planet. A uh, bigger planet, more gravity. Is that is that uh, true? It's true that uh, more mass would be more gravity, but if it were uh, a larger in radius, the surface gravity, because it's further from the center, might actually wind up being less really? than Earth. Oh, well, then that destroys my... Uh, challenge, because I would have said, uh, how would you get humanoid-looking creatures with, uh, say, double the gravity? But you're saying that that wasn't the case. All right. Um, a caller, anything else? Yeah, I uh, have a suggestion. I, I love the theory that of the planet orbiting, but to the face on Cydonia, I have a suggestion for it that kind of contradicts. Um, if, but not, if, we are see if human race on Earth is uh, was seated here from the race on based on Cydonia may have been directed towards us, and the theory that I have to add to that, and I'd like the doctors to get you know comments on, um, suggests that um, well you know how you see people see faces in cottage ceilings and everything I totally susceptible to that I see faces in everything, but I've never been able to see the face. Of the man on the moon. Um, oh, that's, I wonder that, now, if, now, wait a minute now. Okay. That is mythical. Oh, okay, that's what I'm saying, though. But what if the thought of the face on the moon isn't oh. of the planetary there? In other words, that, in other words, how an old myth was derived. Right, and, and that somehow was planted in us when we were planted here on Earth oh. so that we would know where to look for our origins. You mean, you mean kind of like the story of the ark? I'm not sure how, how you mean that. But well, in other words, uh, as um, uh, as Mars, um, or as rather the parent planet, was preparing to blow up, bring everything on, seed a new planet. Right. They they, they knew their own planet was, uh, demise was coming, and so they sent uh, yes. a, a start here and, and built on their own moon a face with answers to our own origins. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, I suppose, Doctor, you, if you can imagine one, you can imagine the other. Uh, yes, sir. certainly if these structures uh, at Cydonia turn out to be artificial, I think uh, uh, there would be an exception of some of those you mentioned earlier, Art, that, uh, that wouldn't want a follow-up mission to land there and are in those structures. Oh, my, yes. But it would be... It'd be a wild time on the old planet before we came to terms with it, I guarantee you. Uh, uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Tom Van Flanderen. Hello. Where are you? Hello? Hello? Yes, where are you? I'm in Amherst, New York. Amherst, New York. All right, you're going to have to yell at us a little bit. You're not very loud. All right, I'm sorry. I have a rather uh, thought-provoking question to ask. I'd like to get what you know what you think about it. Uh, one of my professors once asked me if aliens could... Uh, had such advanced technology that they could see our planet from where they live many, many millions of light years away. And light travels so slowly, would they see the dinosaurs? <laughs> uh, the answer to that is yes. Uh, but, uh, of course, you'd, uh, you'd have to be 65 million light years away in order to, to look back 65 million years, because that's how far light would travel uh, in that. And, and in fact... Uh, with our technology as best we know it, uh, the answer would be no, because by the time light had traveled that distance, you wouldn't have enough resolving power left to be able to see anything as small as dinosaurs or even or the Earth, for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
perhaps a, a very advanced species could solve that problem in some way. What is your belief about time? Uh, well, as I mentioned before, um, time would be uh, in, in this uh, alternative model of, of the nature of the universe, it would be infinite. Uh, passes comes into or passes out of existence, but rather uh, uh, forms in the universe simply get built up and destroyed. Uh, that is, but destroyed just means uh, broken down into much smaller infinity pieces. The energy remains. The energy it, it, remains. It becomes something else. Uh, yes, as, as extremely tiny particles. Uh, the things in the universe are, are always changing form, but never really passing into or out of existence. So time was simply in the universe. So there really is, there really is no time. Time is our invention. It's the measurement of two objects or three objects or relative movement. Uh, time is uh, is really nothing at all except our way of measuring change. Yes, uh, that that's a good way to put it. Uh, time is a, a is a way of making a measurement of the rate at which change is going on. I can buy that one easily. Um, Wildcard Line, you're on the air with uh, Dr. Van Flanderen. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. Good morning, Art. Good morning, Mr. Van Flanderen. This is Kathy in Reno. That would be Dr. Van Flanderen. Oh, doctor, I'm sorry. Um, hi, Kathy. I really, uh, hi. I like that moon one <laughs> of that last caller. That was a good one. Um, okay. Um, short question, and then Art, I'll listen off the air. All right. Okay. First, um, Mr. Van Flanderen, I agree with your theories in this area of discussion as far as the, um, the missing planet. I, I've been following that line of logic for a long time. Okay, earlier in the conversation you brought up um, what I have been looking for for a long time. You mentioned when following a, a line of theory, you know, a theory line, and then after you've inspected it from all angles, you said that... Uh, you can you can have it tested, your theory tested. Yes. Um, could you please, uh, and then I'll hang up. Could you please say over the air how you go about doing that and who you contact to do that? All right. Uh, good question. In other words, uh, how do you submit for peer review? I guess. Um, well, I, I was speaking generally about hypotheses, anything uh, that uh, that is the nature of an idea. Well, take your moon of a larger planet. Uh, let's take that one, since you're most familiar with it. How do you test that? Uh, okay, well, first you confront it with the existing observational evidence. Uh, we know that Mars was uh, has a thicker crust by 20 kilometers on one side than the other. We know that it's heavily cratered on one half and lightly cratered on the other half. We know that the present atmosphere is a small fraction of what it used to be. We know that the pole of Mars uh, suddenly was tilted. We know that there are radioactive isotopes present on Mars and nowhere else, uh, suggesting that it was close to a big explosion. All those things fit with the model, but those are predictions of forward time. Uh, the model also predicts uh, that when we get to Mars and take rocks in the explosion 65 million years ago, uh, associated with the demise of the dinosaurs here on Earth, we should have to Mars are 65 million years old when we can actually get rock samples back here to Earth and date them. So there's a, a definite prediction uh, of the model that those craters are going to date much younger than any astronomer presently believes they will. To, 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 to. Your answer, uh, Kathy. Now, my, my question before we go back to the phones, 
Uh, in recent days, weeks, and months, Doctor, we have been experiencing something rather unusual on Earth. Um, in Greenland, something gigantic came down and kaboom, uh, in the Kiloton Range. Uh, and they're going to go look for that when the snow melts. Something exploded over El Paso with about a half a kiloton of, uh, a power, equivalent power. Um, in Denver, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in Georgia, I could go on and on and on every single day with the reports. Large objects creating fireballs uh, seem to have been entering um, Earth. Now, we are not in the middle of any planned or known meteor shower that I'm aware of, and it just seems like a lot of unusual activity, and uh, nobody seems to be able to explain it. Uh, can you? <laughs> Well, uh, I, uh, I am aware already of a set of circumstances that might offer some uh, insight. Uh, of course, if any, uh, if any phenomenon uh, is going on constantly, uh, in a truly random phenomenon, you're going to get accidental clusterings here and there. But what, what's the phenomenon? Well, it turns out that we know that there are so many of these we, we, we talked before about the large asteroids that are a threat to Earth, right? A kilometer, a kilometer in diameter or more. Uh, there, there, there may be millions of much smaller objects, uh, the size of what um, happened at, at Tunguska in Siberia in, in 1903. That's not very comforting. Millions of them. Uh, there may be millions of such objects in Earth-crossing orbit. Oh. Uh, when we get down to smaller objects yet, the kinds that, that produced air bursts, it's estimated that once uh, in the upper atmosphere there is uh, an impact that explodes with the energy of the Hiroshima atomic bomb once a day, just statistically from the amount of debris we're running into. Of course, most of the time, as in the upper atmosphere, nothing ever gets to the surface and we don't notice. All right. But as modern day, a lot more people aware of goings on above us, I think that we're tending to notice these events a lot more than was possible any time in the past. That may well be so. Um, now, one other question. This coming November, I'm hearing a mainstream press reports that the Leonid uh, meteor shower is going to be perhaps... The one in a hundred, like everybody, that it's going to be tremendous that it may knock out communication satellites that we're really in for quite a show in November. Is that, could that be? Uh, yes, uh, it, it is a possibility, but not a likelihood. Um, what what uh, you're referring there, uh, to there is to give rise to the showers that are the meteor showers uh, around uh, the second week of November. Uh, every time the parent comet uh, comes by again, which is every 33 years, we get uh, extra intense showers, and on a few occasions, the showers have been what are called meteor storms. Uh, so, uh, people who, the so startled people who saw it, said they had the uh, impression of the Earth rushing through space. In 1833, wow. the first great storm uh, recorded in modern times, People all across the United States were awakened during their sleep by the flash of the fireballs uh, outside. Uh, some of these stor storms have been truly intense, uh, not not in the sense of threatening, but in the sense of spectacular. Um, either this year, 1998 in uh, November, or in 
Should something of that magnitude occur, would the world's communication satellites be at, at, at jeopardy? Uh, I'd have to say uh, yes, even though these are very, very small uh, meteorites. Uh, there are so many of them, and they're moving so fast that they can damage satellites. And I would say uh, some of the unshielded satellites have a, certainly a higher, a much higher than normal probability of suffering some damage during a storm that intense. I depend very heavily on satellites to be here, actually several of them. And if any one of them were to go, KU band or C band, I would be, uh, I, I'd be gone. Well, so the, I'm, I'm going to bear that in mind. Space is uh, so large, fortunately, that the probability of, of any one of them suffering an impact is not great. But collectively, uh, the probability of, uh, of one of them suffering an impact at the time of a storm is much greater than it would be at any other time. And if it did occur, like in space, nobody would be able to hear me scream. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Art. Steve from South Dakota. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, 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 Doctor Van Flanner, you uh, mentioned that the face might have been located at one time at the at the equator of, of Mars. Yes, that's right. Uh, we do have somewhat of an artifact analog on our own moon, and that's the 16 mile crater Eukert that reflects an equilateral triangle. Yes. At uh, certain times of the month, if you're standing there at Eukert, the Earth would be directly overhead, right at the sub-Earth point. That's a rather un, un, unusual thing. Uh, one side of, of Mars was more heavily, you know, cratered than the other side. Yes, very much so, like it was slammed with a shotgun. Well, our moon, besides being egg-shaped, uh, the you know, you, you know, crust on the far side seems to be thicker and more, you know, heavily cratered than the near side. And there's not that much. There's very little, you know, Maria. Uh, would the exploded uh, planet hypothesis be working to affect the moon's geology in this way, and that would be assuming if the moon would already be in, you know, tidal lock when this occurred. Not the air. Thank you. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, the reason for why it uh, keeps the same face toward the Earth today, uh, why the particular side that faces us does, it probably also has to do with the history of planetary explosions uh, throughout. Uh, the uh, four and a half billion year age of our solar system. Uh, we mentioned before that the particular there was probably one way back at the beginning, uh, a, a gas giant planet that apparently exploded and gave rise to what astronomers call the the early heavy bombardment, which is largely responsible for the huge cratering and the mare or so-called seas, the dark areas uh, on the visible side of the moon. And uh, it w that would have pre preferentially hit one face of the moon uh, over the other mm -hmm. and probably gave rise to the uh, uh, the, the big impacts and the huge uh, outflows that occurred on the yeah. side that faces us constantly because it actually has these mass concentrations just beneath the surface. Doctor, uh, we are at the top of the hour. I have one more hour of program left, but uh, it is 5 o'clock where you are, and my presumption is that you need to get some sleep. Uh, um I'm sorry to say that's true, uh, although this has been a delight. It has been a delight, and I really, really thank you for uh, coming on tonight to, was in such short notice. I, I really appreciate it. Is, is it when, next time I have you on, I want to know why planets are round. Okay. All right, we'll so do that. we'll hold that question. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. And good night. That's uh, Dr. Tom Van Flandren. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM.